And then he looked at me and he said, where do you see yourself in seven years? Right. I'm a 21 year old kid. And I just thought that was the stupidest question I'd ever heard. <laughs> How do I know where I'm going to be in seven years? I don't know where I'm going to be in seven months or seven weeks or right. even probably seven minutes from now. Right. And I said, look, I don't know where I'm going to be in seven years. I mean, I might be like a tax attorney in seven years. I might not even be in law in seven years. But what I can tell you is what I'll be doing in seven years is probably something I really love and something I'm really good at. That's the best I can do. And he literally just looked up and he goes, welcome to the firm. (laughs) Put that coffee down. That's a clown question, bro. In another episode off script, Lance Zerline, Eric Layden, Lance, I am all sorts of fired up. I, um, I'm a little late to the game here and I've been holding off the best I can, but I gotta say, and I guess I'll just say this as bluntly as possible. I'm fucking over coronavirus. Dude, I'm having a bad week. I'm having a bad week because I I am the same way. I just. Lance, I guess I've convinced myself of an alternate reality because what happened to me today, I realized the kids are not going back to school and I, yeah, I know. I know. Go ahead and giggle. I'm going to, I'm going to give you a beat here. Okay. Because it hit me today, dude. It hit me. It hit me today when my six-year-old, we were trying to get out of the house and, or excuse me, my seven-year-old, we're trying to get out of the house and he's like, I need you to help me tie my shoes. I was like, no, you don't. You know how to tie your shoes. He's like, no, I need you to help me tie. I'm like, tie your shoes, tie your shoes. Okay. There are certain things. And I lost my mind about the shoes, right? I mean, I just, I lost it. And I can tell that my patience is waning it is like a it is like a guitar string that is tuned so tightly that the next pluck it's just going to explode <laughs> and i don't know how i'm going to get through the school year and i think that i convinced myself in this I, like i went into fight or flight or something my brain did this amazing thing where i kind of just I kind of just put myself in a mode where I was like, it's fine. It's fine. I get to spend time with my family. It's fine. You, I get to spend time with my kids. Previously. Previously. Be- before today, dude. Yeah. Before yeah. today. Okay. I, before today, I convinced myself that the world was fine, that I was okay, that I wasn't going to lose my shit when my kid can't tie his shoe. Uh, all of that, somehow, I convinced myself today, it's over. I'm fucking over it. I'm over the virus. I'm over wearing masks. I'm over them not being in school. I'm just fucking over it. And the rude awakening that hit me is that it's 
August 7th, or what day is it today? I don't even know what fucking day it is. That's the other thing. I don't know what day it is. We've been doing this since March 12th, man. And I'm just, I'm like, I'm losing my mind. I am losing my mind. I have not worked. I have not been on a set since January. Oh, Since January, dude. I have not, I have not worked since January. And again, I'm very fortunate to be in a position where I'm not like, living in a van down by the river, but that situation could change drastically coming up if we can't get Hollywood up and running. And yeah. all of that kind of came to a head and the idea of them being home, doing school at home. I like, honestly, dude, fuck it. I'm, I'm just like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to start drinking beers at noon and I'm just gonna, I'm gonna, uh, you know what? If they want to watch door of the Explorer or whatever, they want to watch Octonauts or Garfield all day on their iPad. Like I'm, I, I feel like I am one step away from being you just being like laying on my bed with a towel, eating Chinese food, watching alone. And that depresses me. No, no. Well, you know, now that I said it, I do feel very depressed lately. Um, most of that is accurate except the China. No, yeah, I did have sushi. Yeah, so it was Japanese food, but dude, we can't yeah. even go to sushi anymore. Most like, of I mean, what you, you can, but you can't. It's like well, I, it's I don't want sushi to go. I no, know. I don't want sushi to go. I know, I know. It's not the don't same. Don't give me a bento box. I don't want a bento. No, box, I don't dude. want your. I want to go and I want to. I want to enjoy the sushi. I want to sit at the bar and I want to enjoy the sushi. How do you eat your? So when I eat sushi, I'm this. I'm the same way. I like to eat sushi. Although, you know me, my style is I like to, you know, I like to get into a rhythm and watch shows. You know this about me. Right. I have put up an iPad before and watched an iPad. I have watched a show on an iPad actually more than 10 times. I have put an iPad up, headphones on, and, and similar to what I'm wearing right now, like the Bose big noise cancellation, and I have to take it off and, uh, yeah, creamy miso, please. Yeah, thank you. And okay, so you're basically on. so you're you're a seven year old. Well, uh, no, because seven year olds aren't eating at the sushi bar, so there's a big difference, huge. Difference. You are acting like I said. First of all, you cannot walk into a sushi restaurant and as a grown man and sit there at the bar and put a, set up an iPad like what right behind your soy sauce. You just kind of set up an iPad there, put your headphones on. Dude, Actually, that is the very, most disrespectful yeah. thing I've ever heard. Who am I? Who am I? Well, all right. What if I do it on my iPhone? Because a lot of times I'm on my iPhone doing it. What if it's an iPhone and it's less cumbersome? Bro, respect the fish, man. Respect the fish. These guys are back there. They are busting their ass to keep their. They are pulling your rice out at a temperature that was is within a degree of perfection. They are slicing a piece of salmon mm. against the grain, laying it on a shiso leaf. They are brushing it with a little bit of soy, yeah. if that's what they want you to taste, maybe a dab of wasabi. They sure. are not looking for you with your Iron Man headphones and your iPad with your robot cover sitting there. Let me ask you something. Did I, when I went to, we went to Hama, sushi together by the way went to hama, hama you said you said meet me at this place called hama downtown that was my first time but this is when i was in la doing nfl draft stuff um not yeah. this year but year before and i said cool so i'm headed down there 
I talked to a couple of people from NFL Network. They, they were like, oh, man, that place is great. That place is great. So I'm going down there. By the way, the first time I've ever drove through Skid Row, Waze doesn't give a shit. Waze is just trying to find the, the fastest way. And I'm telling you, Waze, you got to give me a heads up on that. Skid Row, for people who don't know, I don't want to go. I will go way off script because that's just how I am personality wise. And I want to stay on the sushi. But I'm just saying, Skid Row blew me away how massive it was. Skid Row reminded me of Hamsterdam from The Wire, where it was. Yeah, that's pretty no, much what it looks like. There were no rules. I, I couldn't believe, like, I was catching all these greens. I'm like, fucking thank God I'm hitting all the greens. I felt terrible for the people in the streets, but it is so massive, like so many blocks. I couldn't – and I'm like, Waze, man, what the fuck? You got to give me a little bit of a heads up because it could have potentially – We'll talk to the developers of Waze and you know how they put the little thing that says police 500 meters or whatever yeah. they say, you know, or car stuck on side of the road, 200 feet. Skid row. What do you want? Just skid row. And it's just like a long thing of green. Like we're just telling Tense. you some shit could jump off here inside this particular <laughs> 52 blocks of skid row. It actually is something like that. So anyway, we get to Hama. At no point do I bust out the phone. At no point do I go to the magic iPad. At no point do I bring out headphones. You know why? That's a great, legit sushi place. The places I'm talking about are good. The fish are good. I'm not going to go somewhere where the fish isn't good. But I don't know that it's a respect the fish type of sushi place necessarily. I don't know that I'm getting that vibe with the shiso leaf. I don't know that I'm getting the perfect rice wine vinegar that captures the essence of the sushi rice like Jiro dreams of sushi. This is not, oh, are we going to get a fatty or, or a lean pea? Oh, what would you like on your toro? Well, okay, these places do have the a toro, but I'm just saying, I don't think the sushi chefs – Behind the line that I'm watching, I'm not mm. sure they trained in Japan, if I can be honest about that. I don't gotcha. think there's you, Japanese training. You, you, they're, not, they're not massaging the octopus for eight hours in the back. That is correct. Well, so it's a little, uh, di- it's a all, little different. Okay. First of all, I don't, I don't want to – I mean, yeah, I don't gamble with my life. There are certain things I don't gamble with. One of them is my life. So I'm not looking to go to cheap sushi. You clearly are. You know, you're looking for the conveyor belt. You're looking for the special. No. Now, I have been to a conveyor belt once or twice. This one place, mm-hmm. just yeah. for rolls, not for ex- actual sushi. Um, it that's that's kind of embarrassing though. Like that one. Okay, I don't so I mean, but that's probably it. no, 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 no. What's embarrassing is you sitting up there. Where's my baseball? With your big headphones on, with your robot <laughs> iPad, while you order sushi. I'm okay? not saying breaking beans. I'm not. That's not. It is not what's happening there. I j- now that is one a hundred percent of the time. I have to, and, and I like to watch food shows. Let me ask you way. a question. I watch food shows if, while I'm eating. If you see, do you watch? So you watch food shows about other types of food while you eat. Whatever food show it happens to be, it, it, like if it's um, the John Favreau show, the Chef show with uh, Roy Choi, whatever they're making, they're making. It could be a Jewish deli. Like they hooked up one time, I was eating sushi and it was the Jewish deli. Yeah, see, I don't want to see like the greatest like Tex-Mex, like queso and all that while I'm eating sushi. That just puts my mind in a weird place. Yeah, it's true. You know, that's just like a that's like watching. I don't know what, what yeah, I don't want to do that, man. That that's that's 
I don't even know what it's like. It's just wrong. It's just wrong. I wouldn't do that. I can't, I can't like, I want to get in the mindset. You what know? are you I drinking with sushi? What are you drinking with sushi then? I usually go with Japanese beer. My favorite hit a Chino, mm-hmm. hit a Chino nest. I don't know if you know it. Mm-hmm. You probably wouldn't like it. It's expensive. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, if you're going cheap sushi, they're not having it where you go. They're not. What having, about, they probably have like the big bottle of Sapporo on on draft or a big bottle of Sapporo I, two for one. What about like a Mister Pib? Yeah, no, I don't. No, 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 dude. I go. Diet Dr Pepper goes great with certain types of fish. So I like a Hitachino Nest. Okay, that's a Japanese beer. Or sometimes I'll have a little sake, depending on who I'm yeah. with. Okay, I'm yeah. water with lime at lunch and at dinner. I have. I, I will do some sake from time to time with the people that, cold or that hot. I know and trust. Um, I actually prefer it colder. Okay, the hot well, is cause... serious. The hot's for for the serious people. The warm. The hot. You say hot. Yeah. It's warm. Yeah, it's it's warm. It's um, it's bullshit, is what it is. Okay. See, I go cold. Yeah, of course. Well, yeah, I mean, okay. I'm actually surprised. That's a little sophisticated for you. I'm way more sophisticated. I had a food show. I had actually. We had one of the um, producers or directors of Jiro Dreams of Sushi on my food show, and we also had a guy. Now, this guy was pseudo pretentious as shit, and he explained the process of sushi rice, explained sake as well um, about polishing of the rice and how the different sakes are made. And so, actually, it was actually very, very interesting in terms of um, learning a lot about sake and 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 the process mm-hmm. that they make the sake it's it's something that my palate would understand yours you're a beer guy that's fine beer and sushi sounds great sounds amazing when you go to these restaurants like sushi and donuts like do you notice that your <laughs> unagi tastes like glazed donuts because they're using the same machine listen i don't go to a place called sushi and donuts i will say this though is there anything? Do they have wrong? a lunch special? Do they have a lunch special? Yeah. Well, all sushi places have lunch specials. That's true. Your, they actually don't do. pull your cockamamie La Jolla <laughs> half half the fucking time in La Jolla, half in L.A. Sushi fucking elite excellence here. Bullshit. Everyone's got a lunch special on sushi. Okay, and that That's is true. the big they difference. Do. Sushi at lunchtime is like, hey, this is a very reasonable lunch. You get a pretty good amount of food, relatively speaking. It's quality. But at nighttime, at the dinner menu will make you pay at every sushi restaurant. That's just the way it is. That's that's, that's fine. Just I just sushi's not one of those things that I ever want to like. I don't want an all you can eat. I never want to feel like it's too good of a deal. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Like yeah. barbecue, by all means. Fried chicken, hand it to me. Text mess, make me a deal. Okay. Sushi. I want to feel like I might have gotten robbed on the way out. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm calling bullshit on on you to an, to an ex, to an extent. I think you always need to have at least one sushi place where you say this is my go to for relatively inexpensive sushi. Like, look, the the cuts of of sashimi may be thinner; they may not be as much, but you need to have that one place. Like, I've I've got this place here, and it's always everyone in Houston goes. It's a known thing. It's packed. It on a, um, it's called uh, Wishi, and it's okay. packed. They've, it's 
it's so old school. They don't spend any money on the interior. It's still got wood paneling like from the 70s. But it's right. very reasonably priced. The sushi's good. Um, if you like rolls, the rolls are good as well. And it is on a wait basically from 11.15 until about 2.30 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon. That's just the you way gotta, it is. You got to go see my boys over at Cata Robata. They're, oh, they're, That's the Kata. best sushi in Houston. Now, it's not this, but it's not the – now, I didn't say I wasn't. Kata and Uchi in Houston are the two best, but Kata is where I went – for my birthday 10 years ago in Omakase on a Friday night. And it was, uh, it was fantastic there. That's where Seth Siegel Gardner was 10 years ago. Yeah. He, he might've been there. He might've yeah. been there, but for the first time, that's when I had uni for the first time. Oh. I was nervous. Everyone had talked about how don't ever get uni. Uni's the worst. Uni this, uni that. And, uh, I mean, I, I don't love uni. I don't dislike uni. Uni's fine. It, it got a little bit of a bad rap. You'd think it was black licorice or you'd think well, it was. because it looks like poop. Yeah. No, it doesn't look or like, yeah, like, like a dog ate a pumpkin and took a shit, a runny shit. That's about right. Yeah. That's yeah. about as descriptive I feel like as that's you can accurate. get. Yeah. 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 That's, that, that's actually quite accurate. Yeah. Thanks. I'm, 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 I'm with you on there. There, there you go. Um, I, how did we get onto sushi, man? I don't know. I'm happy though. Now I kind of want sushi. So, you know, my, me and my wife's first date, we went to a sushi. We, neither one of us at this particular time were eating sushi. I just, I just really hadn't had sushi at this particular time. We've been married for almost 20 years now. And our very first date was awesome. We went and saw Chocolat. We saw, um, Chocolat. Chocolat. We saw Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. And in between that, we went to this place that was like a, a sushi, it had sushi. It had everything. It was at a movie theater. So, like, it was mm. a big movie theater. It was a, sushi. A couple places you don't eat sushi. Movie theater. One. Gas station. Two. Airport. Three. Ah, uh, uh, that's not true. In the, there's in some the airport places. Donut, in the back of a donut parlor. Okay, all those places. But movie theater Paul's in one of them. The other place you don't have it. Speaking of first dates, uh, is a place called Sushi Mac in Los Angeles, where my wife. God love her. She decided to take me to which we started dating. We hadn't dated long. And she said, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to take you to a sushi restaurant, the place I like. I said, great, let's go. And at this point I was already kind of a, a sushi snob, but, um, she takes me into this place. Uh, it's on third street, a little bit east of La Brea. I mean, excuse me, La Cienega. And we walk in and I see a fucking conveyor belt. I see, <laughs> I see the conveyor belt. We sit down. Uh, you can order things or you could just grab what you want off the conveyor belt. We, we sit down, we, we pull some stuff. I'm already having like sweats because I'm like, I can't do this. This is against everything that I stand for when it comes to eating raw fish. And she ordered tuna and hand to God, they brought tuna fish, like canned tuna fish. Like wait, I'm talking wait, 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 wait. star kiss tuna fish. How is that possible that, it, that it's canned tuna fish? Bro. That's not, it's but that's not. possible that this, I'm telling you this place, it was the, it was probably the type of places you would go when you're looking to save a dollar. This is the place. This place had canned tuna fish. I'm, I'm, I'm not lying. Look it up right now. It was called Sushi Mac. 
And anyway, I said to my wife, I said, uh, listen, is there any way I could take you to my sushi place or a sushi place that I like? And she said, sure. And we went and and now she's a absolute sushi fiend and she's as much <laughs> of a sushi snob as I am. But our first sushi experience was at this place called Sushi Mac and it was atrocious. It'd be interesting to see if it's still around. Does Mac mean Mac and cheese? Because what does Sushi Mac mean? And the, I don't know. I, you still got me at the Starkist tuna at a sushi restaurant. I, I don't understand what that means. And yes, it does say that it is open on Ventura Boulevard, Boulevard in Sherman Oaks. Is that it? Well, that's perfect. It's moved to the Valley where people have left sophisticated taste. There you go. Is that right? Because it's got a 4.6 out of 5, and it also has this. This is what A.J. Wells said, and he's a local guide, according to this Google review. Yummy, yummy. Mm. Glad they're open. Such a delicious meal to have, and it's such a great deal. Thank you for your amazing service and sushi chef. Mm. Okay, so all you needed to take from that is great deal. Like I said, red flag number one. A lot of affordable. Never go to sushi for a great deal. A lot of affordables in here up to this point. Forever yep. my first love sushi place. If you never tried sushi, come here. I love simple rolls. I don't care for places that put the, put the sauce on it for you. This place is fast when I know what, exactly what to get, and I want to get out of there in 10 minutes. Wait, 10 minutes? Whoa. How can you eat sushi in 10 minutes? You can't there you 10- go. Conveyor belt does – you know what? Conveyor belt gets you in and out in 10 minutes. Holy shit. So the two so the two reviews you've read have two huge red flags. Great deal and super fast. Two things I am not looking for in sushi. It's like Both sex. You're not looking for a great deal or super fast. Yeah, the great deal part will, yeah, that's not, you think you're looking for a great, and when we say great deal, we're obviously not talking about paying for it, but there are no. deals and non-deals here. Um, yeah, I really like this place, how quick they are and how affordable the rolls are. However, their waitresses are always unfriendly. They should definitely get rid of the plastic containers for the soy sauce and oh. serve the water in a glass. Wait, in a glass, not a what? Not a single use plastic cup. <laughs> there you go. So, okay. So in, in the three reviews you've chosen to read, what? you have summed up exactly my uh my my reservations about eating there um okay alfredo barrios jr i worked with him on a show i did called six on the history channel he is a fantastic writer a really smart guy burn notice justice uh, magnum pi at the moment he is a fantastic storyteller. He's got gems, gems for anybody in the industry, uh, you know, certainly young writers, but also outside of the industry. He just, because of his upbringing, because of his story, which we'll get into, which is pretty incredible, um, he's just got some some life lessons that that I think are gems that I've always, as I've gotten to know him, kind of kept in my back pocket. Um, fantastic guy. Really excited to have uh, you meet him and get him on the podcast. So um, let's do it. Here we go. Already got one thing. I'm like, well, I better tell him to cut that. Hey, hey, hey. Okay, we are back. Uh, sitting next to me is 
I, I'm gonna say I'm gonna say a good friend. Yes. I'm not a great friend, not a best friend, but I'm gonna say a good friend. But the potential to be a best friend. Absolute potential is totally there, <laughs> but I never want to steer people the wrong way or put you in a position where you feel like you have to be a better friend than you feel like you are. So I'm gonna say a a good friend that had we had the pleasure of working together on a show called Six. It was a short-lived, uh, well, my time on it was short-lived because I entered in season two, uh, but it, it was a two-season show on the History Channel, um, and after some fumbling by the studio and network, it got canceled, uh, and and we had the pleasure of working together. You are a fantastic writer uh, who I have become a huge fan of after meeting you and working with you, and I feel like we've, between our love of sports, love of television, and love of kind of strange things that we kind of always tend to find ourselves either in or talking about, uh, we become good friends. Yeah, I think that's that's pretty accurate summation. Okay, so Alfredo uh, not, Barrio but, but Jr. Not best friends. No, 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 not yet. Not yet. Pretty good friends. It's, Maybe by the by the time this podcast could be, done, could be. Who knows? Friends. Maybe we talk about some things and get vulnerable here, uh, <laughs> and, and with enough beer and you know bourbon, we find ourselves talking about things that allow us to become even better friends. Perfect. Yeah, but I've met your um, wife. We've gone on double dates. You've met my wife. Wonderful woman. Yeah. So I mean, you know, we're on our way. Yeah. We're on our way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Lance. I've known Lance for quite some time and he just, I don't even know if you know this Lance, but as of three weeks ago, best friends. No. Oh, I thought we hit the best friend mark three weeks ago. We didn't, but I will tell you something that happened three weeks ago. I don't think you know about that. You're going to be pretty pumped. All right. You, you made it onto my favorites page on my phone book. Oh yeah. Watch me look at the dab. Yeah. yeah, Dab it out, dude. Yeah, dad, that's a dad. big move. Dad, dad. That is a big yeah. deal. I'm, yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, I, I upgraded you from Layden to Eric Layden in my contacts. I uh, I feel like that's a downgrade, actually. <laughs> no, I up I updated you completely to a real person, not just oh, the last Oh, see, name. I actually think that when you go from – I feel like the – like Eric Layden is one thing, but then when you go to nickname or just last name, it actually becomes more comfortable. Yeah, I think if I think if you're one name on somebody's phone book, yeah. it's, it's your best friend. Yeah, I mean, you're tight. It. I mean, yeah, who are tight. in your favorites? Pardon? Who are in your favorites? Like on your iPhone, you go to the contacts, you go to favorites. Who are they? Mm. Uh, well, definitely my wife. Sure, of course, of course. Um, Maybe your agent. My agent is you're definitely calling a lot. definitely favorite. Uh, good friend of mine who I mm-hmm. went to law school with. Mm-hmm. Best friend. He is a best friend. Yeah, uh, goes by Andy. Okay, so and that's one, and you just got of, him in there as Andy, correct? A money, maybe a, money, a dollar sign. Manny, <laughs> totally. Is his nickname. Um, yeah, you know, there's a few people, you know, but you know, right? You feel right. So. It, that is a downgrade. You going from Layden to Eric Layden. Now, I think I just hit up update. You know, iPhone now says, "Would you like to update photo the, the photo and the name?" And I said, "Sure, mm-hmm. I'll do that." So now you're Eric Layden, but before you were Layden. But the more I think about it, you're right, Andy. Is clearly your best friends with Andy. Clearly, he's Eric Layden in your phone, also, just like he is in mine. But you know, I was doing some research on you, Alfredo, because I wanted to go a little deeper, and I found something that I really enjoyed. And it's not the 2010 Comic Con interview where it said that you were on with another guy, Matt something from uh, from from Burn Notice. Yeah, Matt. Nix, you, yeah. 
Yeah, I said you were both on, but your answer is only about four seconds and his is about seven minutes. So I'm like, well, that's, <laughs> that's kind of bullshit. Did you get cut out of that? That was bullshit. That was total bullshit. That was total bullshit. But you know what was? You know what is a great – for somebody like me, so I'm in sports and then I do NFL draft stuff and all that. But I love movies. I love television. I love everything about the process. It's one of the reasons we do this. You were talking about pitching ideas and that you like – when people pitch you, you know, you like being able to pitch. You don't do it with notes. I do plenty of p- pitching in my business as well. And I don't like having notes either. I like I like coming up with a concept and then maybe having a general outline, very much like you described it as well. But one thing that I thought was interesting was that you said when people are pitching you or writers in a room, you have to just – you have to keep going. Even if you get turned down – you have to keep going. You have to keep going. You can't let it dissuade you. And I think I think a lot of people get dissuaded. I know I can. I don't want to be a pest at some point if I'm pitching concepts to my bosses at NFL.com. You don't want to be a pest. But I guess if you have good bosses who trust the, the creative, you know, and, and that, this goes for anybody listening too. If you're in sales or whatever that you're doing, if you've got a boss who trusts your ability and they have some vision at all, you're not necessarily a pest. You're just, they, they want you to keep going. It's just that particular idea got shot down maybe. 100%. You know, I always uh, analogize my job as a writer who has to pitch a lot of ideas, you know, whether that's like episode ideas and a show might be working on or, or show ideas if I'm pitching it to a studio network. Um, I don't know if you remember grown up and um, having that uh, clown blow up doll um, that you used to punch. Right. And then it would like tilt back. Yes. And then come right come back. Right back yes. And then you were able to punch it again. Yeah. So I always say that um, you have to be that punch doll in this, in this job, in this business. And you have to ha- do it with the same smile that that clown had. <laughs> right, yes. back up. right back right. up. Oh my right god! Right back up, and 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 um, oh, that makes me both happy and sad at the same yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. As an well, actor, because well, I'm doing the same thing. Right, it's the state of our business. No, but seriously, I, I, you know, when I, I consider my job to be uh, basically nonstop idea generation, right? And and also beyond that, it just can't be a volume thing. It's got to be something that you really believe in. Right. So you've got to you've got to pitch stuff that you're 100 percent behind. And um, because, you know, this job is really this business is really about R&D, right? Research and development. And so much of research and development in all sorts of businesses is a lot about failure. Right. And it's about being able to um, kind of like move beyond the failure to kind of get to the win. And that's just persistence and a belief in yourself that you could basically, um, even if you've got 10 fails, you'll get to the one big win. And, and I think where people fall down, particularly in this business is they, as you said, um, kind of get down, um, because it's really hard to, uh, live with failure and rejection, Yeah. but, um, you've got to kind of have a short memory and just kind of say like, you know, well, I know I can come up with a bunch of really good ideas. 
I want to follow. Let me follow up on that one second, because I think one of the things that really um, that I've found over the years in doing radio, because I've done radio now 23 years, NFL job for, uh, I guess, six years. But I've been in the process for a lot longer. And as somebody who is has come up with creative concepts over the years and some of them have worked and done really, really well. But but the thing when I started pitching some business concepts that was really enlightening and then I've seen this in radio, too is a lot of times the higher up you go, the less visionary they are. And, and as a creative, you know, it's like the old, it's the documentary I saw art and copy. It's hard sometimes to mesh the two because if you have vision and you have a concept and then you can tell they clearly don't get the concept or the idea, they need something tangible as opposed to something that is a concept that can get really frustrating as well to say, hey, why can't you buy into this? Why don't you see what I'm seeing here? I know this is a home run. I don't understand why you don't see it. Right. No, that's totally true. And sometimes you actually have to take it beyond a pitch. And I'll give you an example. Um, once upon a time, I was actually with a really big agency um, <laughs> called CAA uh, prior to our divestiture as a writer's guild. That's right. That's right. Uh, but, um, asterisk for those who listening, uh, writers no longer have agents. <laughs> <laughs> right. Or at least, uh, not two big agencies anymore. No, uh, yeah, exactly. Two of them are gone, <laughs> and, but everybody else signed on That's to, right. the, to the guild's demands for, for our agency representation. So anyways, uh, you know, very seasoned agents, really good agents. I actually really respect them. I think they're great guys. And I remember going in and I was really excited about an idea, right? And it was a kind of noirish idea, but the problem was that it didn't quite have a main character. It had four main characters that we kind of followed um, equally throughout the piece, right? And uh, not to get too into the details, but basically there was a lawyer, there was a mayor politician, uh, there was uh, uh, the head of a cable news uh, channel, and then there was a retired homicide detective, right? And they were all kind of revolving around this crazy subway explosion that happens at the beginning that nobody quite knows what that's about, whether it was a terrorist attack or an accident or what have you. And I was really psyched to pitch it, right? And I go in and I do a whole pitch. And my manager actually, to his credit, is like totally behind it. And the agents just kind of stare at me blankly. And they're like, so is this like a law show? <laughs> and I'm like, mm, no. But one of the characters is a lawyer. And they're like, okay, so so like a cop show then? And I'm like, no, it's not a cop show. It's just, it has a homicide. you know." And so what I realized was it wasn't like something that they had seen before. Right. Mm-hmm. It didn't feel familiar enough, right. right? And, you know, again, like everybody has their role in this business. And I think agents, you know, sometimes want to go for the thing that they feel is the most marketable. I don't blame them. Right. But in that instance, I really felt like they just didn't get it. Right. right? So right after that example of a failure – at least in the the office, I decided that I was going to write that script mm-hmm. like immediately. So I did. And after a first draft, I sent it, I emailed it to them. And I said, oh, by the way, that script that you told me not to write, I wrote it. Here's a draft. I just kind of want to get your feedback. Now, without them telling me, they started sending it around town as a writing sample for me to get like pilot assignments sure. and job. And I just started 
getting this job and that job and this job and that job off a script that they told me not to write. That you t- right. Right. So- and now all of a sudden they've sent it around town. And by the way, again, for those who don't understand, like writers, and you can speak to this if I'm, if I'm misstepping here, but writers oftentimes will write scripts that agents will use strictly as a writing sample because when they're, when writers are looking to get hired uh, by studios or networks or at a lower level to be in a writer's room. If you don't have a lot they're good. Let me see a writing sample. Let me see what this guy, this lady, this woman can do. And you send that out. So here all of a sudden they are, after they've told you like, this is not an idea worth dealing with. You've written this script. They're now they're sitting it out and calls are coming in. Correct. Who is this guy? Correct. What is this cool script that we've never seen? This is so different. Wow. Correct. Correct. And so whenever I'm on like, you know, um, writing panels, which sometimes I, I jump on, like the one that you saw uh, for the WGA, I believe that was. Yes. Uh, one of my big um, kind of closing statements to, you know, aspiring writers or kind of more junior writers is, okay, so that idea that you're really passionate about, that your agent tells you not to write, and that your fellow writers with maybe more experience that you tell you not to write and that maybe other people like maybe your wife tells you not to write and maybe even your closest best friend tells you not to write. It's probably the script you should write Yeah, because it's probably something nobody's ever seen before. And so there's a kind of discomfort with it, but that is what might make it different enough for people to respond. Right. And so, and special. And that's the, that's the balance in this business where, it has to be familiar enough for somebody to feel comfortable buying it, but fresh enough for it to actually succeed. Dude, and that is what oh, – I'm about to go off on a tangent here. <laughs> um, I'm going to try not to, but this is why we call it off script. So that's what – as you know, I'm, I'm in the, I've been developing a show for close to two years now, and we've talked about it. We're at a, we've got a production company. We're at a studio. We have come up. I mean, the pitch doc that we have sent them is phenomenal. They have come back with it. Now, this is a show just to, to, to preface it a little bit. This is a show about, and this is a true story. This is a true story about a man who was falsely accused of killing a cop and spent two years in prison during the trial, and then 10 years on death row and have since gotten out. And it's the story of a bond between him and his attorney and all that he had to do to get him out. And it basically is an indictment of the justice system and the judicial system and policing and why there has to be reform and, and how easy it is to put someone on death row with just a couple little missteps, we're not missteps, but you know, maybe we hide a little, uh, you know, exculpatory evidence here, and maybe we throw a doctor on the stand here, and all of a sudden, boom, we've got this guy on death row, and then in turn, how difficult it is to get this guy off once he is on. So we have dialed this in. This is a black individual who you know, fell under an IQ scale of even being legally sentenced to death. Okay. And spent this time on death row, a system that totally railroaded him. And we've sent it to the studio that we have been working with. And the studio said to us, it feels a little too much like a legal show. (laughs) 
it feels a little too much <laughs> like a legal show, is what they said. See, wow. it just I wanted, I wanted. I are you going to put Ice T in it? Are you going to put Richard Belzer in it? I mean, I they were like, you know, if we could maybe dial, and this is such a you're going to laugh because this is such a studio note. Maybe we go twenty percent less legal and twenty percent more character. You know, and it's like, okay, I'm all about building character and making this a character study. That's fine. But it's a fucking legal show, dude. It's about <laughs> justice system. It's about the fucking judicial system. Right. Like, yes, of course it feels like a legal show. You know why? It's a fucking legal show. Yeah, like, yeah. this yeah, is what we're trying. And and it's, you know, I am... And we'll. I want to pick your brain a little bit more, even off this podcast about it, because I'm having this like existential crisis of how I am dealing with this. If I'm going to disengage with this studio, because I feel like what they want, like they really like the story, mm -hmm. but ultimately what they want is kind of something else. Mm -hmm. And they continually want to like shave ours down to what they want. But then all of a sudden it's not ours. It, now it's just a different story. Right. And, but I also have an, an obligation to the person, this man and his attorney who gave me this story and said, and I looked them in the eyes and said, I'm going to get this made. I am going to make sure your story is told. Wow. But but now I've got the people that have told me they're going to make it and my best chance to getting it made trying to make it something different. Right. And it's just it, you know, I feel like Hollywood it well, it just goes back to what you're saying and I just needed to vent a second, but it it does. It feels like it's one of those things where they say we really want to feel comfortable. We know we need to know like what box to put this in, right? Like in your situation, is it a legal show? Is it a cop show? Is it this? But at the same time, they you hand them that and they're like, now nah, we've seen that. Right. We've seen that. Right. We want something different. Well, no, right. you really don't. Right. I mean, you do, but you don't. Right. Yeah. I mean, and so much of it honestly is also timing. Sure. Um, particularly these days, you know, I don't think anything ever really truly dies. I think I could probably resurrect most of the pitches I've 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 gone through and, and created, and that haven't gone anywhere, um, because it's so much of it is just about timing, right. right? And 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 whether the stars align in the right way, because it's not only whether it's the show at the right time, and it's your show sounds incredibly timely right now, but also. You think? you think, but also whether it's with the right studio right. and the right network and the right cast right. and you have the right director doing the pilot and you have the right other auspices behind the show and all of those stars have to align for it to happen. And that's what makes it so hard. But that's meanwhile, okay, so all those things have to align, but at the same time, I'm on the phone yesterday with the production company, and they go, oh, yeah, we just sold yesterday in 10 minutes on a pitch, an action film with Keanu Reeves. And yeah. literally, they, I was like, what's the story? They're like, we don't have one. I go, yeah. what do you mean? He goes, no. We just literally said action movie, Keanu Reeves. Yeah. It, it, like, it's gonna, there's going to be a train. I, Is I this new? You don't think this? I, I, I was just like, here and, "Oh my god, this isn't new." It makes me want to. It makes me want to scream. Yeah. This is why, okay. listen. Why don't you add? Can you do? Okay, you can do the drama stuff, and you can do all that. What if you? What if they came back to you and said this? Okay, look, 
We'll let you do the drama stuff. That's fine. You don't even have to dial it back 20%. Can we set it in the future and maybe make it partly sci-fi? And this is, see, <laughs> this is, you, see? You, okay. Here's the thing. This is how crazy this business is. Lance is that we're literally at a time in our culture, in American culture, where we have a black lives matter movement marching down the fucking streets. <laughs> right. Okay. We've got, we've got that happening. I am, you'd think, wait a minute, you're trying to sell a show that uh, uh, an African-American got railroaded by the cops and the attorneys and, and he got sentenced to death row? Yeah. Oh my God, dude, you're just going to walk in a ro- room and sell that in five minutes. No, I'm not. No, That's I'm not. what I would have thought. No, I'm not. Yeah. Because Hollywood has to overthink itself. So true. It's insane. Has it always okay. been like that, Wait. Alfredo? As a writer, has it always been, have you always felt it was like that? Um, you know, I, I will say I think things have gotten better. I feel like once upon a time when there were basically three networks sure. on free TV, right. and this was like pre-cable and pre-streaming, right. I felt like it was a really bad time. Of course, in TV, um, and every writer who you know really wanted to like write good stuff was like writing movies. Right? Yeah, they were writing independent film. Right, exactly, and um, and it does feel to me like the the stuff has gotten better uh, progressively sure. as um, you know, basically different platforms, whether they're streaming or cable or what have you have become more niche. Mm-hmm. Right. And so they have to be more specific mm-hmm. and they have to be kind of fresher. Um, and so I think things have improved generally, but there still is that kind of uh, idea of like reducing everything to kind of like a conventional thing. There's still that impulse, right? Or, or that idea that you know, you know, maybe Keanu Reeves could play the guy. You know, right, in which right. case, in which case, you probably got to sell. Right. Oh my God, for sure. If I knew I mean, he wasn't doing an action movie on a train, I'd fucking call him. Right. But, but apparently, he's doing an action movie on a train. Right. I I think that one of the things though that's happened with that is that you you say okay, now we've got all these cable networks, right? Mm-hmm. And we've got all these spaces to tell these amazing stories, and we do. Television is, God knows, it's at a great place, right? It's it's killed independent film, but it's at a great place. Right. We can all tell these amazing stories. But now what we have is, you know what? That doesn't really feel like FX. And you're like, what do you mean? Man, mm-hmm. it feels a little bit more like USA. Okay, like now they're each becoming so niche that you have to find the place where it goes amongst all these huge swath of of you know opportunities streaming you know uh basic cable pay cable you know there's just so many now that i feel like they're all becoming so specific and i don't think that's necessarily a bad thing but it's not as if you can take a story that you have whatever it is and say i'm gonna pitch it every like you're gonna pitch it to all the places but but there are still just those few places that are looking for that thing 100 percent yeah, there was a very, uh, there is a very wise uh, executive named David Madden who used to run. He's uh, great. Fox, Fox TV. Yeah, and yeah. now he, I think he, he runs, was. Uh, he was at did the killing. Yeah, he he was at AMC he, for a while. Right. Yeah, and now great. I believe runs Berlanti's company. Right, but no, I believe he was at Fox TV. Fox TV had the killing. Oh, AMC, correct. And That's, he was and he was there, and he is a fantastic exec. Right, fantastic. One of the and a really good guy to boot. 
And uh, one of the things, and, I, and I'm paraphrasing what he said, but he basically said, um, a show that is for everybody is probably for nobody, mm-hmm. right? And what he meant was you have to find the very specific niche into which this show will fit, right? Mm-hmm. And like to your point, like you're going to have to find the network that is presenting that niche. And it's hard. Yeah. And it's hard when in this kind of like somewhat chaotic uh, television landscape, those um, outlets change brand as they change management. So what might've sold there yesterday might not sell there today or tomorrow. That's right. And so that's the kind of like game that you kind of have to engage with in a whatever 500 channel platform world where brands are changing and people are, are kind of changing their minds about what their brand is. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, you saw it with USA where Mr. Robot took off and they decided, you know what, that's actually the direction we're going, you know, so we're going to go in that edgy direction or, you know, uh, I mean, HBO, when they switched presidents, you know, a lot of shows, Treme, a lot of them got, got axed for that reason. You know, they decided he's decided he's going to come in and, 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 and change it up. Um, that's a lot of industry talk. Sorry, Lance. Um, but, but we have a lot of industry listeners, so that's good. And I think it's interesting for people. Um, let's, let's go back a little bit. You have a pretty awesome story. You're from LA, uh, from East LA, I would say. Uh, born yeah. in East LA, yeah. raised in Southeast LA, Norwalk. Okay. And, yeah. and you, Tell us a little bit about, I, I know the story, but tell us a little bit about, I mean, you grew up, you, you, how you grew up, you didn't grow up with a ton. No, no. Um, you know, maybe going back to my parents, like my dad actually came to this country. He was born in Mexico mm-hmm. and came to this country playing semi-pro ball, um, baseball, um, got looks from different clubs, um, but unfortunately for him, he was one of the oldest uh, kids in a very large family, I think of about eight. And uh, his dad split. And um, being a very responsible young man, he kind of like abandoned any kind of dream of like really pursuing sports. So, which is, I think, really tragic. But he ended up uh, meeting my mom here in Los Angeles while he was, you know, spending time here. And, um, and my mom is a very creative person, singer, uh, kind of like really self-educated big reader and got me into that. Probably is why I became a writer. Um, and they formed a family and, um, you know, and, uh, growing up, it was very sports oriented for me. Um, I usually grew up in places where you either a gangbanger or you were an athlete. So you kind of had to pick one. And sometimes, you know, you had both in the same family, but, um, the one thing that I, the, the two, the two major sports in my life, um, growing up, wa- one was baseball and the other was boxing. Uh, my dad and my uncle, who at one point was a translator for all of these Mexican boxers, like at the forum, at the Olympic auditorium, um, knew everybody they knew and they knew all these Mexican champions, uh, Ruben Olivares, Bobby Chacon. So I have these really funny Polaroids of me at a 
you know, like those birthday parties yeah. at the park where you like fry up some steaks on like the yeah. the public grill and yeah. buy the you know the you Ralph's the carne cake, the, the carne asada. Yeah, 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 you got yeah. it. You know, you yeah, put the you tortillas got over on there. The nearest tree, you got the pinata. Yeah, and I have like you know Ruben Olivares like holding me on his <laughs> shoulder. That's classic. <laughs> and uh, you know, it was kind of family. Like where one of my first memories, earliest memories, um, is. Uh, I remember my dad going, Hey, come on over here. And my cousin who was uh, maybe like a year or two older than I was like, was standing across from me wearing these enormous things on his hands with that, which I later realized were boxing gloves. But at the and, time you'd never seen them. I, yeah. And I was like, Oh, those. And, and then I realized that my dad was pussy, putting boxing gloves on my hands and he's like, all right. So basically like, you know, let's do a little boxing. And one of my earliest memories is literally just tasting the leather. Oh, wow. Because, <laughs> oh, you know, my, I think my cousin had done it before. Sure. And uh, I just remember just literally, I, I think I had forgotten to keep my mouth closed. And just my tongue went right up against the leather. And it was really, na- you know, gnarly old yeah. boxing glove. And um, and that was the first time I ever got hit. And and then, you know, my dad used to take me to like, I, honestly, I was like five, six years old. I was going to the Olympic Auditorium, wow. uh, shadow boxing with Bobby Chacon after Bobby That's Chacon awesome. had fought some guy. Wow. And, um, and he, you know, all I remember is, uh, you know, after one fight in particular, um, Bobby Chacon was pretty busted up. And just how wet the wraps were. I just remember viscerally how just that's like <laughs> yeah. a, a, a feeling I still remember. Right. And and uh, Bobby Chacon took me into the ring and we just started shadow boxing in front of everybody. It was just like, uh, you know, wow. it's just you can't make this up, you know. You know, and um, with the Mexican fight scene, too, is so as somebody who I, I, I loved not as much boxing now because it's not what it used to be, but I grew up on boxing in the eighties and it was an unbelievable time. But then I really got into reading about the history and going back to Jack Johnson and Fitzsimmons and Tunney and Sharkey. And then of course the Mexican fighters, you grew up with, with these unbelievable fighters and, and Olivares is considered one of the top five Mexican fighters of all time, easily top five. Julio Cesar Chavez to me is the greatest I think to a lot of people, he's the greatest. But there's something about that era. And you talked about – I remember watching fights in 1990, I think it was, on TV in the in the Fabulous Forum. And they would have some unbelievable fights. Guys, I didn't know. But when you had two – and the announcers would be so excited. When you had two hardcore, talented Mexican fighters who were fighting, the whole city was there. And it was just – and un- you were going to be in for a phenomenal fight. You were, you just knew what you were in for. And I would say that has continued, you know, from, from, from early seventies, it ran all the way through the late two thousands as well, when it was still golden era of, of boxing and especially for the Mexican fighters as well. It's, it's something that to me, historically, it's going to go down in boxing history as a true golden era. What is with it? What is what do you think? Why the Mexican culture in boxing? I mean, it's is it? It's cheap. It's free. You could you don't have to have money to do it. You know, I mean, it's not golf or it's, it's you don't have to buy it, things. I mean, it's, it's yeah, it's, it's machismo. But, don't you, but I mean, do you think there's an aspect of it that like you can be poor and box? Like, yeah, I and think, I'm not saying all Mexicans are poor, but what I'm saying is like you, you have like lower class Mexican culture that succeed in boxing. Yeah, no, I think that has a lot to do with it. I mean, um, 
it, there is a certain machismo, you sure. know, to the, to, I mean, look, I just told you the story of, yeah. you know, like <laughs> right. one of my early, my yeah. earliest memories as a, as an, as a human, right? you know, is being introduced to boxing in like, you know, in the kind of way that you would introduce somebody to swimming by like throwing them in a pool. Right. 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 Like, right. I mean, just punch them in the face. Yeah. Just punch them in the face. And so, and so there's a certain, uh, rite of passage, I think that, you know, most, uh, you know, a lot of Latin kids, you know, Latino kids like go through where it's, uh, it's a little bit of like proving yourself. And, Mm -hmm. and I think, yeah, certainly there's like low, low cost to entry, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, and I think the success of a lot of Mexican boxers over decades has filled a lot of kids with a lot of dreams of Mm -hmm. like making it in the, in the fight game. Yeah. Right. And in the same way that I think, you know, a lot, maybe in the United States, that would might be true for basketball. Sure. That might be true for baseball. And, but I think, you know, Mexico and Mexican fighters have like really probably, um, you know, overperformed in boxing, you know, relative to their own representation and right. in like world sports, you know, and, and certainly, uh, I rem- yeah, I remember watching fights during eighties and nineties and, 2000s and uh and yeah it's changed i mean i think that that was that was the thing that we used to watch a lot so but it's also a regional too like julio cesar chavez we all know is from culiacan mexico so it's it's like Mm -hmm. a really big deal when you when you are like albuquerque used to have some really uh talented fighters as well some of the toughest guys came out of albuquerque here you know here in the states but um, I think a lot of it is – and they really claimed Albuquerque. That was a really big deal to be from Albuquerque. I think there's something about boxing, um, especially Philadelphia fighters and Kronk, you know, the Detroit fighters from the Kronk gym. There's something about the regional representation. When you're a warrior, the representation of your space and your community and the people, you're the toughest out of that particular area. That's why everyone from that area – you know, there's something romantic about the notion of um, – the, the one warrior from your from your area, from your tribe, from your your culture, whatever the case has been over the years, that's why boxing to me has some of the best stories about the the great Jewish fighters and the great Irish fighters and the great you know when when you had all the immigrants coming in and they had their one guy that they you know you had the great white hope you had Jack Johnson um, of course we know about you know, with uh, Joe Lewis and how big that was with Max Schmeling. So I think that's what's unique is the storytelling in, in boxing to me is to this day, I think it surpasses, it's right there with baseball in terms of uh, the romanticism and, and it's way more nuanced than just two guys punching each other. It truly is the sweet science, but it, there's a lot more to it. I think Alfredo that, and there have been some really great boxing movies done as well and boxing shows that have been done. Yeah, no, I think you you hit on something for sure about, um, you know, I think a lot of the boxers that we knew came from Tijuana, right? My dad spent actually a lot of time in Tijuana. Tijuana is, I mean, as brutal as brutal can be. It's probably, you know, the Detroit of Mexico. Right. You know, you got a lot of like really <laughs> tough guys. The Detroit of Mexico. And, you know, you got a lot of tough guys who are proving themselves on the street and and then get drawn into a boxing gym and really trained, as you said, like in the science, the sweet science, which it is. And um, and they become a representative of their community, of their city. And that's why you see a lot of those. I mean, you know, Mexico is filled and Mexican fighters are filled with just such great stories about where they come from. And that becomes part of their lore and part of their mythology is you know, those wars between the boxers from, you know, Tijuana and, you know, mm-hmm. Mexico City and 
they become kind of like, you know, the, the person that represents where they're coming from and everybody that's coming from there. Yeah, I think it's one of the things too, and we've talked about it, Lance, when we had, even last week with, with Outcry, and, and uh, I don't know if you've seen that documentary on Showtime, um, but we had the director of Outcry on and, and the subject of the docuseries on, and it is, you know, when you live in a town, a small town, you grasp for any of those things. You know, it's why you see these people in any sport come back and they have a street named after them, or you see a sign that says the home of, you know, if they're from a small town, not something necessarily you see in LA as much or Houston or New York because they're big towns. And there's a lot of people that come from there, but certainly a small town or certainly anything you can grasp onto. Right. I mean, I think we always are looking at people and seeing how do we identify with those people, right? Who can, what is it? they're Jewish. I'm Jewish. You know, right. they're Mexican. I'm Mexican. What, whatever that is, you're going to grasp onto that. 100%. Um, yeah. so you, so you now you're growing up, you're playing sports. I, you, yeah. from, you know, you did, you went, you went into the sports, not the gang, correct? Or did you, correct. Did you no, I did not go to the life? gang. No, no, I did not go to the gang. So I, I grew up playing uh, a little bit of soccer, a lot of baseball and a ton of kickboxing. Okay, so I was going to say I, kickball, and you I was about to kick you out. Of <laughs> I was a really good kickball player, but no, no, I went into uh, into kickboxing. I did uh, martial arts like since I was a little kid. Okay, I think I, think I, I actually realized that I love fighting. I really kind of love fighting, and um, and I think part of it is also, um, you know, it's the thing that you often hear, um, particularly in MMA. They talk about this a lot, like you. <sighs> It's kind of a weird thing to say, but you kind of have to like to get hit. Yeah. Because it wakes you up. It makes you alive. It makes you as present as you've ever been. It's a it's a it's an instant injection of adrenaline. Mm-hmm. Your senses are never as heightened and you kind of get hooked on it, right? And so for a long time I was um I you know I was just doing, you know, you know, amateur competitions and here and there. I, I taught taekwondo when I was in college. It was kind of what I did also. Um so that yeah, that became a part of like growing up um kind of like a way to pass time in a in a in a in a situation that didn't offer a lot oftentimes just cuz we didn't have that much money, but that was there always there and and then I um, I became, a, you know, I was a really good student, um, and, um, and ended up, uh, did you like school? I mean, you were a good student. Did you like it or did you feel like it was a way out? I, I love school. You did. I love school. Yeah. Yeah. Is that from your mom? The reading? I think it was from my mom. Yeah. Right. I, um, I think I got my like completely overcharged competitive nature, which I still have from my dad. Mm-hmm. Um, and I probably got my love of like learning and books and all of that intellectual stuff from my mom. Um, and she's also really, really creative. So, um, yeah, I was like, that was the mix I had. And, um, and, uh, yeah, I start, you know, just, you know, on the writing stuff, it was really funny. I, um, I love to, well, two things. One is, um, I think when I was around, we were around five years old or six, I was six years old. Um, our TV broke, right? Our, our one TV in the house broke. That was UHF. That was, it was like bunny ears, I think. Yeah. Two knobs. Antenna, you know, the whole thing. Lance, you're old. You remember that. Oh, they were the worst. 
Get <laughs> up and turn a channel. Yeah, right. you're getting up. You're not. Right. There's no remote. And sometimes but it was used, like. Oh. But that's right. what I'm saying. Was, that, that's why network television used to work. It was never better than when you didn't even have remote controls. Like, well, fuck it, we're in on this show now because yeah. I'm not getting up. <laughs> I'm not getting up. Yeah. Yeah, and and I think it was also like, remember, you used to kind of hold the antenna, and you're like, okay, just hold it there. Yeah, yeah, we're yeah. We're getting better reception. <laughs> yeah, if you're a kid, like the you like the rite of passage is the youngest kid is just holding the antenna. Like right. a little bit more, a little right. bit more. Stop! Don't yeah. move. Hold it there. You're like, oh fuck, man, right. I'm missing the whole show. Like I now I'm holding. Just hold an antenna. You right. got. You're like, bring me the tin foil. You're wrapping tin foil on that thing for some reason. Like that's going to do anything. It was. It, works. it was. It was so weird. So but, your TV um, goes out. So my TV goes out, and my dad realizes. And I have uh, two sisters, younger sisters at this point, that um, we're all reading a lot more. So my dad decides not to fix the TV for like two years. Oh. Oh shit! So I have like a hole in my like cultural background, like TV pop culture background, right? Because we didn't have a TV for two. (laughs) So there's like two years that you have no idea when people are like, "Did you see that show?" You're like, "No, not in there." It's like a black hole, right? But I read a lot of books, right? Right, and so that kind of got me hooked on reading. Smart guy, Um, and and then come like third grade. uh, By this point, our TV was fixed, but I was hooked on books. I pitched my third grade teacher uh, on the idea of starting a newspaper. All right. So this became actually the, f- I'd like to say like, this was the first show I ever sold and I'll tell you why. So I, I pitched, I, I, uh, I said, you know, I'll need a staff. So I got like my best friends to like be, be part <laughs> of, of the newspaper. And so, um, and so she was, you know, it started off kind of like lamely. It was kind of like, you know, we're having tater tots today and there's an assembly of four and, <laughs> It's an early out today at three, you know, that kind of really boring stuff. And I was kind of like, I mean, this is not at all what I thought. It's not it, your voice. It could be. It's not That's my not voice. Your voice. So is it a cop show? Is right. it a legal is show? It a legal show? <laughs> and so, and so, and so they had kind of lost track of it because they basically had let me kind of do my thing and like have access to the, the copying machine, which by the way, was the kind of copying machine. I'm totally dating myself where you would smell the cop, the copy yes. and it smelled like vanilla ice cream. Yes. Like mimeograph. Like, like mimeograph. Mimeograph. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it was like purplish. You know? Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah. It went and along with the microfiche. The microfiche. <laughs> it's how, you, it's how you researched. And so what I so what I said so what I just started doing was I just started making up stories about people. Oh, that's brilliant. And so I was like, so so and so, you know, Michelle was making out with Mikey behind the classroom <laughs> the other day. And was there a Michelle and Mikey? Yes, there was. But they didn't read it. You knew they didn't. They actually did. And here's oh. the kicker. Here's the kicker. They wanted to be in it. Oh. Even though the stories I was making up, I, I was, I was, the stories I was, I was printing were made up, but they all wanted to be part of it because they were wow. funny, right? They're kind of like these funny stories that were sure. making them famous, right? Wow. So, of course, so basically I turned it into a tabloid yeah. rag, right? Well, uh, where and, I, and you were just, and it's your first foray into writing. Right. And here was the lesson. Made up stories sold yeah. a lot better than like not made up stories, oh, right? So, so that was my lesson. If it bleeds, and it so leads. If it bleeds, it leads. I discovered that at third grade. Yeah. And so finally, of course, somebody um, who I put in the story 
basically ratted <laughs> me out and said, no. right. "Oh my God, he's making up stories about me." He said yeah. I was doing this or that, you know. Yeah, well, and, I, yeah, and they got. And by the way, ten, he's a ten-year-old editor in chief. Yeah, no and, shit. And by the way, the stories were starting to get really crazy. They were like, you know, so and so stole a car. <laughs> because i had to realize i had to up the the ante of course you always have to keep going so it suddenly went from like a newspaper that nobody wanted to read about because it was all about tater tots to us that to the rag that everybody wanted to the number one yeah and and then it was canceled because my my teacher basically said um and i was scared like shitless basically i was just like i'm i'm gonna get kicked out of school right i'm so done my parents are gonna be really angry um, I'm probably not gonna be able to watch that TV that's now fixed uh forever, you know, and um and so I got that's canceled awesome. and um it was the first show I ever sold, the the first show I ever got canceled, but it was a uh, it was a huge lesson to me because it was basically, oh my god, people like to read what I write. Wow. And so that's how kind of how I started getting that's writing. unbelievable. Okay, so you're a writer at 10, you realize all that, mm-hmm. you go through high school. Mm-hmm. You go to Harvard. Mm-hmm. Did you get a scholarship to Harvard? Oh, yeah. Uh, okay. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we couldn't fix our TV, man. Right, right, right. So obviously, yeah. Okay. So you go to Harvard, and then how do you get into law? Uh, you know, And by like, the way, here's this like, uh, you know, Mexican-American kid from East LA, Southeast yeah. LA, sorry. Um, yeah. Was that, that had to be a big deal? Yeah. It was a huge deal, man. I mean, I was the first from my family to go to a college. You know, I got wow. into one of the better ones. But um, and the reason I got into law was because even though I love writing, it wasn't what I thought people like me could do. Like it felt like very it, it felt like somebody with a lot of money should be doing that. And me being a kind of first generation, you know, college student should just be going into a profession. And I couldn't really think of anything I really wanted to do. I was a really good writer. I could actually argue really well. Um, I actually liked performing. And and kind of a side note, I was really into drama at this point. And mm-hmm. I always viewed kind of like law as like maybe, well, it's kind of mm-hmm. like a little bit like performing. And But here's the kicker. What, what really kind of got me sucked into the law was I was recruited by Warren Christopher mm. in law school. Like the former secretary yeah. of state, yeah. right, for Bill Clinton, um, had this firm. He was running this firm here in Los Angeles called O'Melveny Myers. And it was like a big, mega, uber powerful firm. Right. I'll, I'll tell you how powerful it was. I remember, you know, during the summers that you went to law school, you would often intern or get a, jo- a summer job at one of these big firms. And are you at Harvard Law too? I was so at you Harvard go from Law. Harvard undergraduate to Harvard Law. Correct. So you're in you're back east. Correct. But you're now at a place where you're applying for law school. Correct. Okay. Yeah. And okay. I ended up at Warren Christopher's firm as a summer associate, they used to call it. Okay. This is how powerful it was. So we would um, you know, just kind of like and by the way, they would like wine and dine you. Like, and they and by that I mean like they would be like, So do you want to go to a Dodger game? And I'd be like, Well, yes, I would love to go to a Dodger game. Well, yes, I would. And you're like sitting first row behind the Dodger dugout. <laughs> hey, there's Tommy Lasorda on right. my left. Right. Right. Hey, it's, Tommy. It's that kind of craziness, right? So like East LA kids, Southeast LA bread wait, going to this place. Right. But wait, can I reply? Because you've told me a story and I want to make sure it's on here. Mm-hmm. Um, it, Lance, you're going to like this. But yeah. l- before you tell us, 
how how powerful they were. Tell us how um, tell us how you got the job because you once told me the story. Oh, yeah. Uh, so you're in Harvard Law School, right? And everybody's now trying to get jobs, right? 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 And here's this job, right? Which is like, uh, right? Right? And the way you approach that interview. Right. So yeah, the managing partner from that firm who was basically Warren Christopher's emissary. Okay. Great guy, actually. Um, uh, basically managed the firm, personally went to Harvard to recruit. So this was like the one of the big guys. And I had just finished my first year and had gotten really good grades and just kind of like randomly just chose a bunch of firms to apply to. I had no idea how powerful this firm was. And he looked at my grades and he kind of like arched an eyebrow like, wow, that's really impressive. And then he looked at me and he said, where do you see yourself in seven years? Right. I'm a 21 year old kid. And I just thought that was the stupidest question I'd ever heard. <laughs> How do I know where I'm going to be in seven years? I don't know where I'm going to be in seven months or seven weeks or right. even probably seven minutes from now, right? And I said, look, I don't know where I'm going to be in seven years. I mean, I might be like a tax attorney in seven years. I might not even be in law in seven years. But what I can tell you is what I'll be doing in seven years is probably something I really love and something I'm really good at. That's the best I can do. And he literally just looked up and he goes, welcome to the firm. <laughs> I mean, it was like, wow. I don't think it was an answer he was expecting, but it was so raw and honest. And I think in his mind, probably interesting that, you know, they said, well, yeah, maybe this kid. I just, I love that story. You've told me that before, full disclosure. But I think what I love most about that story, because one of the, my favorite things you've ever told me is that, you know, we so often go into these situations and we have these like responses that we know, mm -hmm. we, you know, this is what they're expecting from us. And, and you were just like honest, you know, and I think that's what, because you've got to imagine that every attorney or, or budding attorney from Harvard Law and Princeton and Yale and all these schools were going in there applying for this job mm -hmm. and saying, you know, what they thought he wanted to hear. Right. 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 Like, I mean, I know oftentimes I get an audition and I like, as a young actor, I would get an audition. I go, okay, what do they want? What do they want? What do they want? Right. And then eventually my mindset changed to, this is what I would do with this. Take it or leave it. Right. If this is how I would approach this work, this is how I would be comfortable playing this role. If this is what you're looking for, this is going to be awesome. If this is not what you're looking for, so be it. I'm okay with that. Right. And as soon as that mindset changes, you have leverage, like you're okay with yourself. Correct. What was that? What was that inside Alfredo that said it was okay to do that? Because you clearly weren't nervous or you weren't, you didn't, you weren't desperate. I think it was a combination of being really cocky and not knowing any better. Right. Right. I think sometimes not knowing uh, how hard, for example, had I known how hard these jobs were supposed to right. be to land, right? I may have given a different answer. Sure. But I was kind of clueless, you know, in a way. And, and all I had to fall back on was being as authentic as I could be. 
And, and that's what wins. And that's what wins, I think. And Taekwondo. Yeah. And Taekwondo. I, I, Lance, I am you, you, yeah. Well, I'm just saying, you've talked about the beginning of your radio career. Mm-hmm. And it's it's similar in the sense that you weren't actually trying to get into it. You were calling and you were doing characters and you were doing what you loved, which was betting and gambling. And, and, and you know what I mean? I mean, there was a sense well, that like you weren't, you weren't auditioning. No, no. It, it kind of came to me. There was a phone call and I was like, I was ready. Preparation was, was, was there. Of course. I was certainly, I was certainly ready, but it is something that you don't, ignorance is bliss. And when I got the opportunity, mm-hmm. I was definitely ready. But, um, I think the preparation makes you, um, confident. If, if, if that's a thing, but it's also something you either have, you, you either, I'm not always confident in every situation in that particular situation. And on a microphone, I'm extremely confident, but I am curious. Um, it is something that I took to fairly quickly and it was like, I was, I was destined to do this. And I knew this at a young age. I'm curious about the Taekwondo stuff and the, and the MMA, because I've talked to enough people. I've talked to Joe Rogan, uh, in my radio studio before about this there's something about that discipline that really breeds um, poise and brings a level of confidence, I think, in some people. that. And I don't know if it's that subconscious caveman thing that if something jumps off, I can defend myself or if it's more of you know the true martial arts of just being centered and having a greater sense of, of self and greater sense of the world. Did, did any of that play into the cocky Alfredo that was there? Um, that is also a really confident Alfredo. Man, you are on today. Um, yes, I actually, it's funny. I often say this. Um, I think a lot of that had to do with, um, yeah, like doing something where you're super disciplined um, knowing that if you work hard at something, you're going to succeed. Like it's really, it's really a result of like work ethic, but it ultimately comes down to this. I think that like, when you have gone up against like countless people that are looking to basically kind of hurt you really bad mm-hmm. and, and they have like, they've punched you in the face and I, I have, I've broken probably every finger and every toe in my body and you come out the other end, right? in a way, almost a more built up person. Mm-hmm. Right. But it's kind of like, it's a little bit like life and death, right? Like if you take a, a certain kick to the face or the temple, like it can really like mess you up. And mm-hmm. I think that when you're in those high pressure situations, you kind of say to yourself like, well, you know, he's not going to like kick me in the temple. Right. Like, right. I, mean, I feel like, you know, yeah. you've been through kind of like a real high pressure slightly life and stake situation. And so when you're in those high pressure situations where there, it's not that heightened physicality, but it's you, there is a a level of confidence. I think that comes with. Well, you're like, I grew like, you just look back at your childhood and you're like, I, I, you know, like I don't, there are people probably in that position trying to get that job that feel like they need something. And you're like, I don't like, it's, 
I know where I come from and I know what I can live off. Uh, You know what I mean? There's just not that sense of like pressure, I guess. Yeah. Like you said, this guy's not going to kick me in the temple. Yeah. And I think there was also a fair amount of street smarts. You know, I used to have like gangbangers roll up on me. I was like, you know, it was funny because I made quite the the picture. I was, um, I was a weird kid, I guess, maybe as a seven-year-old as I was running my newspaper, but I used to wear a trench coat and carry a briefcase. <laughs> trench coat and a briefcase? A briefcase. Yeah, Very I used well. to wear a trench coat and carry a briefcase. And <gasps> um, and these, you know, these little, you know, like cholos and, you know, gangbangers would roll up in their like chrome bikes, you know, like yeah. low rodeo chrome bikes. And they'd be like, you know, like, I don't think they even knew what to make of me. Your essay. Like, yeah. And, and, but I never showed fear. Right. And so I just think they were like, kind of like thrown off, thrown off. Yeah. And so, and so you kind of go through that experience and you're like, well, you know, I, if, if I'm, if, if I know I can navigate that experience, like I can probably navigate this experience, you know? Yeah. I think that's, you know, to me that is, and, and I also read somewhere where you talked about at first, you, you had some resentment about being, uh, some resentment about being considered like, or you felt like a trophy at 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 harvard and then you realized you know what i'm actually doing this for more than just me like you felt you felt um i guess a desire to do it for a community for others like you that had that same opportunity you you felt i don't know kind of a mission there yeah i think that's maturity right like right when you're first starting out uh particularly if you're like the odd fish right in a in a really, you know, like high level pond where there's like high stakes and, um, and there's not a lot like you in that place. And I'll just take the law firm as an example, you know, you do feel like, you know, the spotlights on you and you're kind of like, you know, the person that's representing like your people and, and the trophy that the law firm gets to like, you know, put on the mantle. And there is a little bit of like resentment that builds. Cause it's like, you know, man, I shouldn't have to be that guy. Right. Like, why can't I just be like everybody else? But then you realize like you are that guy. <laughs> there aren't a lot like you and you have a responsibility to represent and to like help other people that are coming behind you because there was a person in front of you who broke ground that allowed you to move into that spot and you owe it to the people behind you to do the same. And so I think that just came with maturity and, and kind of reflection about like living kind of and doing things that were beyond yourself, you know, bigger than you, bigger than you. And I think we all go through that, right. And in our own respective ways and different ways, how did you go? But but I need to know how you went from a, a prestigious, powerful law firm to deciding to be the person you are now. Cause that's, that's a tremendous departure. And Eric's never told me this story about you. So I don't know what was going through your head other than you maybe weren't happy at the other job. I mean, what made you make that change? Yeah, that's an interesting story too. Um, you know, I have to say in fairness to the law firm, um, they actually treated me really well. Um, it, you know, there was nothing that had to do with it any bad feelings with respect to the law firm, they actually let me do all sorts of cool stuff. In fact, I, one of the things that I did a lot of was I would write uh, appeals uh, briefs, which were pretty high level and really coveted, including briefs in like U S Supreme court cases, because I was a pretty good, I was a pretty good writer. 
um, you know, well, you ran a fucking newspaper. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, so. I read you know, third <laughs> newspaper at third grade. I mean, what else? Hey, come on. Uh, from from third grade paper to Supreme Court briefs. That's right. And um, but uh, at the same time, I was also doing this very very interesting um, uh, case. I'll try to make it brief because it is a kind of a long story. But I was a twenty nine year old kind of like high flying litigator, right? And I was involved in this. Um, uh, very interesting uh, litigation, which in- involved like multinationals, you know, people from Taiwan and China, and it was like a lot of money at stake and uh, allegations of fraud and so forth and so on. And I'll kind of spare you the details, but I'll get to like the big moment, which was I was supposed to de- to depose a, um, I think he might have been a seventy year old CFO of a company who was a professor of accounting at USC and a very respected pillar of his Taiwanese uh, community, right? I'm a 29-year-old snotty-nosed litigator, right? <laughs> and, uh, and basically, my marching orders were just to paraphrase, kill him in the deposition, kill him, right? And so... Um, I uh, I depose this gentleman, and um, and 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 basically uh, the idea was that um, he was accusing our side of having uh, you know falsified uh, books, when in fact I had found through discovery that he had. But um, in the course of my five day deposition, I played dumb, and told him I didn't know like anything about accounting and didn't know a debit from a credit or a balance sheet or anything like that, and so I gained his confidence. To the point where he just kind of lowered his defenses, and then I just went in for the kill, and basically just blasted him, and realized that he realized that I had kind of tied him into a story that was a complete fabrication. Hmm. And then he started having heart palpitations, and then they called the ambulance. Right, and it was kind of a weird experience because I remember walking back to my office and I was probably hadn't probably slept in a few days and everything really slowed down. It felt like, I don't know if you've ever had that experience where you're like super sleep deprived and everything kind of feels like it's, you almost see a trail behind mm-hmm. things. Right. Mm-hmm. And associates were coming out of their office and they're like, Oh my God, I heard you stroke that dude. And I remember getting high fives from everybody mm-hmm. for having kind of like, demolished this guy. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I walked into my office and at this point in time, um, the law firm had, a what they called basically like a Facebook. Right. And, um, it was literally just a book with your picture and it said where you went to school and where your, what your extension was. Right. And everybody had it. This was pre Facebook, Facebook, <laughs> And my assistant had for weeks been telling me, um, because it was the fifth year anniversary for me, so I had to pick a new photo, please pick a photo from this basically set of photos that look like a photo booth strip, mm-hmm. right? And I'd just been blowing it off because I was really, really busy with this case. And she finally that day had taped it to my desk chair. And as I walked in, I looked at the photos and the first thought that came into my head was, 
who put a picture of my dad on that chair? I looked like a 50 year old man. Wow. And I realized that I, that this job was literally sucking the life out of me. I was just working brutal hours. I was killing myself. I was going for, you know, the brass ring partnership. And that was the day I decided I probably needed to make a switch. Now at this point, a good friend of mine of college had asked me to read his screenplay. (laughs) I'd never read a screenplay before, but around this time, I read his screenplay and it was a really cool, funny urban comedy. And at this point, if you remember, like there was like house party with kid and play. Yeah. Okay. So what year are we in right now? So 1999. Okay. Right. And I think Friday had come out Mm -hmm. and he'd written like a really cool urban comedy and I was totally blown away. And I was like thinking to myself, wait a minute. I went to school with this guy. We actually started a literary magazine in college together I think I could do this. I mean, it was utterly insane. I'd never, ever typed a page of a screenplay before. But again, this goes to cockiness and ignorance. I was convinced that I could become a screenwriter in that moment. So marrying this really crazy experience that went down on this case with my irrational belief that I could become a screenwriter, I decided that I was going to take a leave of absence for the firm and walked into the managing partner's office and told them I'm going to, I needed a leave of absence. And they were like, what are you talking about? Like, dude, you've been doing this for five years. You're, you're killing it. You're billing more hours than any associate. You're like going out and recruiting people. You're like on the associate committee. You're like, you're, you're the dude. One step away from partner. One step. Yeah. I mean, I mean a guaranteed like youngest you know, partner, the whole, yeah. Night. I mean, just, And I said, look, man, you know me well enough to know this. And I guess it goes back to like that original question that you asked about when they said, what would you be doing in seven years? Yeah. And I said, I'm either a hundred percent or I'm zero. And right now I'm zero and I got to do this. And they kind of looked at me like I had three heads, like I had lost my mind and I got up and I started to leave. And one of the managing partners looked, uh, kind of called out to me and he said, hey, b- by the way, what are you going to do during your leave of absence? And I said, I'm going to do some screenwriting. And he was like, kind of nodded like, oh, that's interesting. He goes, have you done that before? And I said, no, I just walked out. That was the last day, that was the last day wow. I was ever at that firm. Wow. That was a lot like Jerry Maguire, but no one I came with you. I was just going to say, that's, yeah. that's no Jerry fish. Maguire without the who's coming with me. <laughs> right. No fish yeah. and no Renee Zellweger. Wow, that's so good. Um, I want to take it in now to, to the aftermath, right? right? And what that looked like. Right. Um, what was, how did it, so you leave the firm mm-hmm. and you're sitting at home. Yeah. And you're like, you got your pen, you got your paper and you're like, cool. Oh, now what? Okay. Oh, so this is, shit. I guess I'll buy final okay. draft. Okay. So this is the app everyone's using. True story. True story. So you <laughs> painted exactly how it looked. Right. Right. So I'm sitting in a little 800 square foot apartment in Herbosa beach. God bless my wife. She's amazing and awesome. And you've met her and you know that. But when I decided to do this, she was, I'm all in. Wow. I'm all in. Whatever you want to do, I got gotta you. Got to have it. Right? You got to have it though, don't you? Amazing. You have to have that. Right? I, I owe her everything. So so she's, you know, busting her ass. Like, you know, she's she's got a great job as a marketing 
a manager. She's killing it and she's paying the bills. And I, and I'm, I'm now sitting there with my computer in our 800 square foot, uh, Hermosa beach apartment, um, in a, in a, in an office, the size of a closet basically. And I get a phone call and it's a, it's a buddy of mine who was once upon a, an attorney at a similarly prestigious law firm in New York. And he had quit to become basically the ab roller king. <laughs> yeah. Random. The ab roller. The ab like roller. The thing the on ab tel- roller. Like on the, the, the commercials. Infomercials. Yeah. Yes. He became an infomercial like king. <laughs> and he said, okay, Alfredo. Yeah. Like that, yeah. like the one that rolls out and you pull back. That was it. Yeah. And he said, here's the deal. Whatever time you got up when you were working at the firm and whatever time you went to bed, whatever amount of time you put into or the hours that you put into that job, whatever that routine was, whatever that intensity of purpose was, you now put into writing every day. Hmm. It's a job Mm. and don't think of it in any other way Mm. because you don't want to waste it. And I was like, for some reason, it just made absolute sense to me. Yeah. And honestly, I've kind of lived by that little simple piece of advice pretty much ever since. It's the best advice you ever got. It's the best advice I ever got. I got similar advice from, from somebody and I think it, um, it's what separated me from all the people I was in acting class when I was 21, 22, mm-hmm. is I treated – I didn't at first. I probably shouldn't say 21, 22. It was probably about 25 mm-hmm. when I started to treat it like a job. Every audition is a job. It's my job. So people would say – uh, instead of oftentimes what would happen is to, to switch my mindset, people would, you know, in, in LA Lance and whoever's listening, people say, yeah, I got a job, so I can't do, no, I can't go, you know, to this party tomorrow. I have a job, meaning they got the, uh, they got the, the, they have to go shoot something. Right. Mm-hmm. I started to not call it that. Right. So I started to call the audition, the job right? The, the training, the job, the class, the job. And once I started to do that, my mindset switched, right? And I knew that if I wasn't acting, it was well, it was on me. I wasn't working hard enough, right? I I read a quote. I read a quote that said a writer doesn't have a writer's block. He's just not writing enough. 100%. I love, um, there was a very famous uh, quote by Graham Greene, uh, one of my favorite all-time authors. And uh, they asked him, they said, do you only write when you're inspired? And he said, absolutely. And I'm always inspired at 9 a.m. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Right. And he knew, and the lesson of that was like, you just have to do it. You have to do it. It's a muscle and you have to continue yeah. to do it. And, and when that mindset changed for me is when my career changed. 100%. You know, your, your process. Okay. Do the same thing. Make sure that you treat your writing the same way that you treated your, your law practice. And, and that sounds great. And that is great advice. I am curious though, based now on your background, I know about your MMA background, your lawyer, the Harvard, I mean, 
you have a certain level of discipline, obviously, that I don't always have. So Evan. during, uh, so in May, when I watched you and you were talking about the same subject, yeah, you know, you said I got great advice. It's the same story you told here, only you, you expanded. I know who told you that story now, the Ab King. But I'm curious during this process, this somewhat maddening process of the quarantine slash pandemic, if you have gotten lax in your process at all, because things are not the same and the work is not the same. And have you, have you backslid? Because this has been a tough time for me to stay on task, this, this pandemic. I will say I've probably gotten more productive. Wow. Yeah, it's been, and not to say that it's been easy because it's been actually harder uh, because the stress is greater. I mean, how can we not be going through a pandemic and be completely stressed out about it, right? Um, particularly if you've got a family, as I do, um, a wife I care about, and a 15-year-old and a 13-year-old boy, right? Um, who are now homeschooled and I'm their PE teacher and you know, you want to make sure that they're on track as much as possible and they're not losing their minds as you're not losing your mind. There was a great book. I don't know if you guys have read it called the war of art. No, it's a fantastic. Nope. It's called the war of art. I recommend it to everybody. I probably read it once a year. Ooh. And you could read it in two hours. It's a very, that's my little book right book. Yeah. Man search for meaning. Yeah. That's a great book too. That's my, that's my once a year. Okay. But one of the, one of the things that, um, that, that, uh, that the book makes is that your greatest enemy is the resistance that you yourself conjure up within you to not get anything done. Right. Mm. And usually the resistance comes up when it's something really hard, right? And it's not just true for writing. So if you want to lose weight, I'll I'll go to the gym tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know they're running a special on the on the gym. I'll go I'll go tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Or um, I want to start a business. Um, yeah, maybe I'll wait till like you know there's better bank rates. Mm-hmm. Or I want to start a book. You know, and you and you create all these reasons for why you shouldn't do something. I can't do it now. Because I can't do it now. I, yeah, I've got I've got my office to clean. Right, right. Like, I've got my can, kids in school. I've got my Zoom. kids in school. Right, they're here at home now. Right. I can't do it. Right? right. So he, the point of it is that he says um, you've got to like fucking conquer that resistance. You've mm. got to get through it. Right. And part of the way that you get through it is by finding what you were built to do. And his point is that it is something that you should be able to do when everything around you is burning. Mm. Because it is the thing that puts you into flow. Mm. Right. So his point, one of the examples I believe he uses was, you know, I think he uses this example, if I'm remembering correctly. But he says, like, you know, basically Tiger Woods, Tiger Woods, right? Tiger Woods been going through a lot of stuff. Like they, you know, a lot of media attention, crazy personal stuff. Shows up, wins tournament after tournament after tournament, right? Mm-hmm. Because Tiger Woods doesn't make excuses, mm-hmm. right? Because that was what Tiger Woods was meant to do. Mm-hmm. That is his purpose in life is to play golf at the most elite level. 
And I think similarly, if you're lucky enough to do the thing that you were meant to do, there's no excuse. And in fact, when the pandemic happens, in my instance, it's the refuge I have to be able to escape it. And so you kind of like go into it even more in, in, a more in a more deep way. I've never been as productive, to be quite honest. It's weird. That's, okay, that's incredible so to me. I love that. I'm going to... I'm going to be the resistance here mm-hmm. and see how you fight against it. Um, Tiger Woods' success during that time came at the expense of his ability to be a good father. Um, I've got kids at home. I've got uh, my wife working. Uh, my kids now are going to go to school on Zoom. My resistance is I'm going to have to be a father and take care of my kids while my wife's in school. Right. So what do I do? I wake up at three and do it till six. And then I'm a teacher from six to four. And then from four to 10, I'm a actor again or trying to write. Your point is well taken. Mm -hmm. I get it. But I just think that in that instance, and by the way, it, it won't necessarily be the level maybe of productivity that you've experienced prior to this craziness. Mm-hmm. Right. But I, I do think that you, you may be able to carve out some time mm-hmm. to do something meaningful mm-hmm. and productive in your field. Okay. Right. And, and, and I don't mean to be dismissive of the craziness that we're all going through. Sure. I'm just saying that for myself, in terms of like productivity that I am able to um, come up with in the time that I'm allotted, mm-hmm. I'm more productive now gotcha. than I ever have been. Do you know what I'm saying? So if if Absolutely. previously, so if previously I had six hours to write, and now I only have three, which is probably more realistic. Right. Those three hours are worth my six hours. Gotcha. And you know that's and that, and that's understandable. I mean, I think that that goes. Yes, I totally understand that. I and I am too. In that regard, I am too. When I have my time to come out here in my office, I am there is no time wasted. Correct. Yeah, in Whereas some ways before, it, there might be some time wasted. In yes, and I agree. In some ways it almost sharpens your focus. Absolutely. Because you don't you can't waste it. Right. Yeah. What are some of the favorite things you've worked on? Give me the best thing you've worked on. The, the the show that you're most proud of. The show that that you that's been on air that that you say, man, fuck, that was good, and I wish it went longer. Well, I, I would say, you know, I really enjoyed six. It was short-lived, and part of my perception of six is is colored by that, in mm-hmm. that I wish it had gone longer because I think we would have achieved even cooler stuff. Yeah. But yeah, for sure, my all-time ex- favorite experience was Burn Notice. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Um, you know, I worked with Matt Nix, who I think is a genius writer, created an amazing show. Yeah. And uh, it was really funny the way that came about. I don't know if I've ever told you the story, but Matt's wife and my wife worked together, and that's how we met. Huh. So it was just kind of like serendipity, right? Uh, they were both marketing executives. 
And um, Matt had just, I believe at the time we met, had left a, a basically being like an assistant at like a management company. And he had kind of decided to like venture into screenwriting. And I had just left my law firm job and had decided to venture into screenwriting. And then somehow we found ourselves in on different tracks in that he was doing mostly feature stuff and I was doing mostly TV stuff, right? Fast forward a number of years, we've become really good friends. He had written this this pilot called Burn Notice. I think I'd read kind of uh, various drafts of, of it, had given him some feedback. I had at this point done like my third Jerry Bruckheimer show. Right. The the ones that are were unsuccessful. Right. Um, and it was around Christmas. I mean, it was literally, we we're heading right into like Christmas. The show that I had been on had just gotten canceled. It was a Jerry Bruckheimer show that got canceled. And Matt had just shot burn notice in Miami. He just shut the pilot and he calls me in a panic. And I was just coming out of a meeting at, at Fox, at 20th century Fox. And uh, he said, Oh man, they're asking for three backup scripts. And, uh, will you write one? And I was like, sure, man. Yeah. And he's like, uh, they like need them in like, like a few weeks. So that meant like I had to work through Christmas, by the way, my wife is pregnant <laughs> with our second kid, second child. And, but you know, I'm like, well, you know, she's pregnant. We're not going anywhere. So, you know, she's about to give birth. So yeah, sure. That works. And he goes, well, I'll write one. You'll write one. We need a third one. Right. And I was like, well, there's these junior writers that I have worked with on these failed Jerry Bruckheimer shows. Sure. (laughs) That would be willing to work basically for nothing because I think at this point they're like, you know, second year writers or like story. I'll get one of those assholes. I'll get get both of them for one. Right. For one, two for for one. Two for one. And so we (laughs) end up, it's a true story. So we end up because we don't have like any, we don't have offices. We don't have. So that was your writer's room. No, no. So we, he lives in Alt. Matt lives in Altadena. So we meet in the back of a pizzeria in Altadena that at night becomes a country Western dance place, <laughs> like a dance hall. So, so the, the reason that, so we're literally sitting on hay bells, breaking the <laughs> next three episodes Ordering as much pizza as we can be- so they don't kick us out. Right. But come 4 p.m., they're kicking us out. Right. Because they got to get ready for the country western stuff. Right. Right. So we're like trying to get as much done between the, the hours of like 10 a.m. and like 4 p.m. Matt is bringing in his own little, like what we used to call it, the giant post-it pad. You know, like the- Sure, of course. You can break story. Exactly. Yeah. And he could just like rip off, you know, sheets of paper because they have adhesive. And he'd put it on the walls of this like country music hall and by the way lance when you break story you're literally have like posted notes or however your style is of like characters like okay name your show ozark you know you've got like marty bird and you've got like what marty's going through in this episode and then you've got like you know i mean you're breaking story about like every character and then what are the made plot points what's the a storyline the b storyline and most offices have like a big whiteboard you're writing it on there they're doing it at a pizza yeah we don't have an assistant and by the way i did i love that though because that's that's the story you'll remember look we all anybody Mm -hmm. who has had any level of success in their business we go back to you know i remember when i quit my 
my job that I was making like $400 a week. And I, I said, I'm going to start handicapping football games because I learned how to handicap yeah. games at a pool hall in New Orleans. Well, what do I do to do that? I'll start my own business, pigskin sports. Yeah, that sounds good. And I'll use this to get into radio. I'll make money and then this will be my side It'll be my side door to get into radio because there's not a lot of guys doing what I'm doing and I'm a younger guy. So what do I need? Let's see. I'll get a phone line put into my apartment and I've got a child that is going to be born in the next seven weeks and I just quit uh, next seven months and I just quit this job, but I got a new phone line in my fucking in my in my kitchen where where I'll answer phone calls and give picks for people who are gambling. That sounds insanely impossible for that to work, and yet that's why I am doing what I'm doing right now because I didn't know any better. I thought that made perfect sense. I thought that was very reasonable, and when I think about my little phone line and sitting on the floor of my kitchen doing radio shows with a little headset that I bought from Radio Shacks, I thought, this is cool. I can have a headset. It's got the little mouthpiece, and I'll do a radio show in Miami. I mean – I didn't know better. I didn't know any better. And I, and now I look back and, I, and, you know, you look back at that and you think that is where the fun really started. I guarantee you, you guys had a blast doing that. Dude, we had a total blast. I mean, it was funny what, as a kind of like a little detail. I didn't know LA could get that cold because we, for some reason, Altadena just got colder than, you know, living by the beach, but they would refuse. They refused to turn on the heat. four four riders in the back ordering a bunch of pizza trying to stay warm but you're totally right it was a it was a a really amazing experience and so what ended up happening was we ended up breaking the next three episodes we all went off and wrote our script literally the day the night my wife goes into labor i hit send on my draft right boom and i told matt oh by the way lisa's going into labor I'll see you later. Cut to, I'm not kidding, 8 a.m. the next morning. I'm sitting in the in the in the post delivery room, right, with the little baby. Sure. And and I'm, you know, and my wife is recovering. Somehow the phone, uh, a nurse enters and says, "You have a visitor." And I'm thinking, well, I wait. I didn't know my mom was coming by, or maybe it's one of my sisters. And I was like, yeah, 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 just let him in. In walks Matt. I'm not kidding. First visitor, 9 a.m., and I realize he's printed out my script, and there's a bunch of Post-its. So he's brought the script that he's noted. With notes. And a gift. (laughs) A rattle and notes. And notes. And welcome to being a writer. But that was the kind of like crazy shenanigans that we would get into on that show. I have crazy endless stories about that. But that, that also sounds like was if there's a moment, was there a moment and maybe that was it in your career where you're like I'm a writer. Yeah. I'm a I'm a writer. Yeah. I mean well, was, what did you have a moment in your career? Was that it? Oh d- no, 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 no! I happened. With, I'll tell you what. Maybe it so, was the paycheck. The no, first I'll, t- I'll tell you oh, where. It, this is where we need to ask. We we got a thing that we're going to start right now with you. What right. was your big break? Walk us through. I'm interested because I remember very well when I got the phone call, like, "Hey, Lance, I want you to come do this morning radio show with me." Right. And the emotions 
and what you do afterwards and sharing it with someone. And then I had a second one. I was lucky enough when I got the NFL gig, tell me what your big break was. What was it? Do you remember it vividly? And what were the emotions that you experienced? Yes. Okay. So I would say this is what happened. So I get my phone call from the ab roller king. Fast forward a year later, I've been busting my ass writing a bunch of, you know, screenplays. I think I wrote like three screenplays in like 12 months, right? Literally, I think a year to the day, he calls me and he's like, all right, what do you got? Like, no small talk, right? And I was like, he's like, what's, what's your best piece, right? And so I'd written something that I was pretty feeling pretty good about, but I was really tentative about it. Nobody had read it. Nobody had read it. And I, and I hated everything I'd written prior to that, but I thought, you know, this was the one that felt the best. Um, this is another side story, but basically when I was growing up, I worked at an adult video store as a teenager. <laughs> so I wrote about that experience and it like was called Glory Holes adult video store. The script, dude, the script was called the money shot. Oh, very okay. well. Yeah. So Not I, sad. so I wrote this thing and he's like, send it to me. I sent it to him. He calls me back. I read it. It's great. I'm going to go send it to my buddy. I'm like, whoa, 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 wait, wait, what buddy? Who are you sending it to? He's like, I'm going to send it to this guy. I know him. He's a good friend of mine. He represents writers. Uh, trust me. Even if he hates it, he won't hold it against you. Like he'll just give you some good feedback, but I think this is great. And I'm going like, okay, sure. All right, fine. What do I have to, wait? I know nobody in Hollywood. Nobody dude. So, I meet with this guy named Larry Schumann and uh, real cool, smart, good vibe, hustler, good energy guy. We meet at like Shutters, which is that mm-hmm. nice, fancy restaurant at uh, or, Santa uh, Monica Hotel. In, yeah, in Santa Monica. I think we talked for three hours. It was like, it was like I'd known him forever, right? Just kind of a guy's dude. Right. And I, I'd literally printed out my script because I don't think, yeah, he hadn't read it yet. And, uh, and so we hit it off and, and he said, uh, well, did you bring the script? And I was like, yeah, sure. I brought it. So I gave it to him and, uh, and I, and I said, all right, I'll see you later. He goes, I'll get back to you like in a week. And I was like, right. Right. Like, and I've been reading in like creative screenwriting magazine. Right. Right. Like, you know, most reps would like take multiple months if you're lucky. (laughs) Sure. To get back to you. Now this is around Thanksgiving and my wife is home and we are fast forward a week later and we are just down with the flu. Like we are just miserable and all messed up. And I get a phone call and I answer it and he's like, uh, afraid it's Larry. And I go, who? And there's a pause and he goes, uh, Larry Schumann, we, we had breakfast last week. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. Hey, what's up? What's up? He goes, uh, and he just goes right to it. He goes, uh, I want to, I, I read your stuff. I want uh, to, I want to I, I represent you. And I was like, the first, I'm not kidding you. He'll tell you the same story. I said, why? <laughs> why? I said, why? And there was a longer pause. And he goes, because uh, I think it's good. <laughs> Like, I mean, I think he was thinking like, well, what's the right answer here? Right. Right. 
So, so I was like, um, okay, well, uh, he's like, well, do you want to like have another breakfast and we can talk about it? Like, what do you, what do you think? And I was like, yeah, 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 sure. Let's, uh, let me call you, let me call you right back. All right. <laughs> so my wife comes out and she's like, who was that? And I said, it was Larry. She goes, Larry who? And I go, Larry Shimon. I had breakfast with him last week. Manager. She goes, what do you want? And I said, he says he wants to represent me. And she goes, why? Because <laughs> he said that my writing was good. And she's like, really? Right. Okay. So I end up calling. I have two cousins that are like mailroom interns at like a Gersh and writers and artists. I don't sure, even know. Big if agencies, yeah, whatever. Yeah. And I'm like, um, can you ask around and see if like people know this guy named Larry Schumann? Because I am convinced that this is that this is a scam. Right. Do you remember the Barbizon commercials? I don't know no. if you remember, but basically back in the 70s, they used to run these Barbizon commercials where they were like, we can make you a model if you oh. attend our Barbizon yes, yes. commercial yes. Barbizon workshops or so schools. I was yeah. thinking he's gonna want money from me. Yeah, yeah. He's gonna want I to think pay this him. guy's gonna want money from sure, me. Sure, sure. To be my manager, to teach me how to be a writer right. in the same way that Barbizon is teaching people how to be models. Right. Or actors. Like that sure. is so how close I am. Yes. So literally, like minutes later, they all come back and they're like, dude, he's for real. Like he's like, real. He's like a he represents agent. like legit guys. And I'm like, <laughs> oh my God. And and so I met him. And that was now I'll yeah. And and so what happened was I met with him and I was like, dude, like, and then I realized, like, oh my God, like this is this is kind of happening. Right. right. It wasn't quite the thing that you're talking about, which I'll get to in a second, but like I was like, wow, this is kind of surreal. Right. Like and so he basically said, look, you know, here's the deal. Do you forget about features going to TV? And I'm thinking to myself, no, man, like, I don't want to go into TV. It sucks. It's awful. And he's like, no, 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 no. I'm telling you, that's where you're going to make it. It's the future. It was bizarre that he was saying this. But I was going to say he knew it. He knew it. By the way, this is a guy who at this point was representing a young guy named Sean Ryan. Oh, wow. And another guy named David Shore. Wow. Young guys. Wow. Young right? guys. Young guys who would become. Crazy Lance, Uber you know those guys? Creators. I know Sean the names. Ryan, the Shield. Well, well, one um, one person created and, the Shield, right? And then the other guy created House. I was going to say David Shore created <laughs> oh, wow. the Shield. House. Yeah. yeah. Right. So, so the they lasted a while. And, yeah, yeah, they lasted a while. They're not, you know, they weren't flashing the pants. No. But um, and so I was like, dude, I'll write whatever pays the bills, man. Right. I'm in. And he goes, okay. So here's the deal. At this point in time, the way that you got hired on a show was that you would write a spec script, meaning sure. an, a, a script of an existing show to right. show that you could write an existing show in that voice. So right. Lance, a lot of times writers write spec scripts in the sense that they're like, all right, cool. Like you're a comedy writer, write a fake episode of, uh, of cheers. Mm-hmm. If that's a show that's on television mm-hmm. and you would write, if you right. like pretending as if you were a writer on cheers, you'd write one. Right, right. Exactly. And so he said, um, so what, sh- what do you watch? And I said, dude, I don't, I watch sports. And he's, and he kind of looked at me. He's like, well, you, you don't watch any like non-sports TV. I was like, well, I watched the show called the West wing. I really like it. Yeah, and perfect. then so the show called the Sopranos. 
He goes, I, cool. I like that. So you're one gonna too. write Sorkin or right, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. I, so that's the yeah. bar I'm saying. I was gonna right. say those are two really so, tough ones. So he goes, so pick one of those on. and write one of those. And, sure. and by the way, he adds, you know, this could be like a three year thing before you get like I was on gonna the job, say. right? Like he's thinking, oh my god, this is never gonna happen. <laughs> so this is now around Thanksgiving, December. So I'm not kidding, man. I record every West Wing I can on VHS. Like I'm just recording. And it's like, I think it's the first season of West Wing. So I'm just recording the first season of West Wing. And uh, he calls me in January. He's like, so how's it going? I'm like, oh, I've watched every episode of West Wing. And he's like, okay. Okay. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. I've been writing these character profiles. And what I used to do, and it was a very lawyerly thing to do. Every little tidbit about every backstory detail. I would write it down and I would create a profile for Sam Seaborn, CJ Craig, wow. Bartlett. Dude, I still remember the names. And I would say well, like, one you of know, shows uh, CJ Craig went to Berkeley and C. Seaborn was at this law firm and Bartlett came from New Hampshire. I can't even remember. I can't even believe I remember this stuff. But I, and then I started hearing and I'd rewatch it and watch it again and rewatch it. And I'd start to get the voices in my head, right? Because I was so invested in the show right come february he's like all right so how's it going and i'm like i've got like a hundred story ideas man <laughs> and he's like and by the way at this point he's trying to get something maybe if i write something good to some showrunner in april right and right now i'm in february going i've got like a hundred ideas <laughs> he's just fucking write one dude right, right march comes how's it going Dude, I've narrowed it down to six ideas. <laughs> Doesn't call. I call him in mid-April. And I'm like, hey, man, can I drop by? And he's thinking, well, you know, he's probably going to drop by because he's struggling, whatever. And he goes, yeah, sure. What, what's up? I said, I got my script. He goes, what? I said, I wrote it. And he's like, okay, yeah, great. And he's thinking, yeah, well, whatever. And I come in to his office and I gave him the script and I go, dude, I got to say, this is a lot easier than writing a feature. It's really, really fun. Really fun. I had a job the next week off of that spec. Wow. And I think the reason that it resonated with people was it was such an irreverent take on West Wing. I made it a total comedy. Oh. Like, a to- because I hated, I not hated, that's too strong a word. I didn't really respond to the West Wing's episodes that were like, North Korea is about to invade us. Right. I responded more to the humor that Aaron Sorkin had. You liked the episode show. where Bartlett was in the hall trying to practice the first pitch exactly. and he's knocking the frames off the wall. Do you remember that, that episode Lance? Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and he's trying to figure out, yeah, I mean like that's what you responded to. 100%. And I wrote a kind of a script in that vein. Right. And I think that people responded because I think most people were probably writing a very like self-serious, you know, episode of West Wing that had to do with like some constitutional crisis or whatever. And I was like, no, no, this is like a comedy. But, it's almost like a farce. But that goes to show like you were always kind of going against the grain there. So Lance texts me the other day and says, have you watched the show The Patriot? I love the oh, show. Amazing. Now, I knew favorites. you were coming onto the podcast and I know it's one of your favorite shows. Like, yes. like absolute favorite shows. Amazing. And I think now I haven't watched the Patriot. I've watched at the Patriot, but I know that it's like just fucking out there. Yeah. It reminded it's me different. of in, in Bruges uh, a little bit from, uh, you know, in terms of the, the, the way it was filmed and shot. And then the angst of the protagonist, there's such an angst and there's such a sadness and there's such, 
but at the same time, he's a he's a he's a killer. I mean, at the same right. time, there is a dark soul, but it's a sad. But but everything about it, he 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 plays folk music where he he literally out loud says the things that he's doing. Yeah. For you know, in these clandestine, you know, uh, adventures he has, it's it's really incredible. This gets back to what we do in the shadows and all these other shows. That it's so unusual that it is it attracts me. And if you're able to be disruptive and clever, and um, and you're able to show me something new, I don't like predictable. I don't like predictable people. I, I like. I like it when I don't know exactly what you're going to say or do all the time. I like when you're going to hit me with something where I don't know what this guy's going to do. I don't know what she's going to say or do. And th- I like the same thing with music. I like the same thing with movie. I like the same thing with television. And don't get me wrong. There are procedural shows like like Bosch. I'm a big fan of Bosch. I don't like Eric, Eric's character, but I like <laughs> Bosch the show. Uh, his character's a total shithead. Fucking Scott Anderson. I swear to God, I, I wish you would Taekwondo Scott Anderson. But, um, no, I, but there are shows that, you know, that fit into a genre that I love, but I also love when I find something. And this was one of my radio listeners said, Hey, you need to see Patriot. And I thought, okay, what is this going to be? Helicopters and somebody's going to come flying in. I I already had in my idea because it's Patriot. I thought, okay, this is going to be, it's not that at all. And I was blown away and I was very happy a listener put me on to, to that show and to zero, 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 my my producer is one of my favorite people I go to for recommendations for television and, and movies because he's so diverse in his, um, you know, in his tastes. And he put me on a show called zero, zero, zero that I thought was brilliant as well. And, uh, it was more down the line with, you know, like a narcos type of thing, but it was, it was fantastic as well. I know there are niche shows and I know it is getting harder to, Maybe it's easier for some people to write for them. It's harder maybe to get them made for for like you, Eric. That doesn't make any sense. You'll you'll definitely land your project because it's impossible for it not to land. But I do think it is interesting right now that we live in a time where network television, you know, I thought a brilliant show was Modern Family. I thought it was incredibly well written the entire time that it was on the air. I didn't see a lot of fall off at all, if any. Breaking Bad was incredibly written the entire time. But I'm kind of curious for you two industry insiders, producers, actor, writer, you know, as network television seems to be drifting by the wayside, at least for a lot of us who now are just watching streaming and, you know, pay cable channels like HBO, which basically are just streaming as well. Does that scare you or does it, does it make you more excited about the, all the opportunities that are out there on all the different streaming platforms that are now doing original content and that are willing to say, Hey, we like different types of voices and different types of tones and different types of shows. I love it. I'm excited by it. I'm inspired by it. I, I think it's an amazing time to be a creative person in this business. I think it's hard. It's like, we've been talking the whole podcast, but, um, I just think that like the opportunities um, and I mean by creative opportunities are wide open and, you know, a show like zero zero, which I also love a show like Patriot would not have existed even five years ago, you know? Um, By the way, if you like zero zero zero, have you watched Gamora on Netflix? I saw the movie actually. 
Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm, I, everyone's raved. I know it's the same the same maker of zero 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 made Gamora. Yeah. I've heard it's fantastic. It's fantastic. And then there's another kind of cousin to that show called Sabura. But um, I think you'd love both of them. But that's an example, right? It's a show made in Italy in Italian about a very specific subculture. One is in Naples, the other's in Rome, and it's playing to people all over the world, right? Because people are very interested in like quality stuff, you know? Yeah. It's a, listen, I think it's uh, today. It's not a good time to be in Hollywood because we've been shut down for a long time, but, but I think in the general sense, today's a good time to be in Hollywood. Yeah, I think that we we have a lot of opportunity to tell story and, and I'm happy to be in Hollywood. Um, I, I think that, I think that smarter heads will prevail and, you know, the right stuff in, in terms of me personally, like will prevail and, and I'll get my story made. And, and, uh, yeah, I'm grateful that as an actor who likes to live in TV and, and, and be in that genre, um, that the opportunities are, are plentiful, you know? Um, so yeah, I, I think that there's, I don't think there's any, I don't think there's an oversaturation. I think there's a place for everybody now as an audience member. I think that there's, depending on what you want, there are places for you to go to find that. Mm -hmm. And I think that finally executive studios are understanding that outside of the networks, because there's such a great uh, library of content out there, you know, they're not basing it on big numbers anymore. It's really about just content and story and how well the story is told. So I think that all those things are really good for people like you and me. You yeah. Know? Uh, and, and I think we'd be remiss if we didn't mention you. Yeah. Burn notice. You, that was a big part of what you were doing. You're doing Magnum PI right now. And I'd read about this. I didn't know you, I didn't realize you were connected to it. And I want to see if it's still, um, going to happen Zorro the the remaking of Zorro is that still going to be a thing yeah unfortunately that doesn't look like it's moving forward it's a long story but I think that you know that I, I kind of reimagined that story and it was very very provocative I actually sold that pitch three times I sold it once to TNT I sold it another time to AMC and then finally to NBC and I always saw that pitch and, and it didn't work out deal wise at both TNT and AMC for a variety of reasons I don't need to go into. But when I sold it to NBC, I was really shocked because it was kind of a provocative, subversive take on Zorro. And um, and I just didn't see how it would fit in NBC. And I was right. Yeah. You know, I think they were intrigued by it. I think intrigued enough to buy the pilot uh, pitch. And to have me write the script. And to their credit, they let me write the script I wanted to write. But I never saw it as a broadcast show. And I don't think at the end of the day, they saw it as a broadcast show. Right. Um, I hear that they brought in Robert Rodriguez to try to reboot it. Um, so, you know, there were worse people to follow sure. behind me. Sure. But, um, but yeah, for the time being, that's kind of like done. But I've got other stuff going on. Well, I will say we've taken a lot of your time and, and we can start to wrap this up, but I will say, you know, six was a show that I came into. So it was kind of a unique situation for me because coming into a show as a new character in season two, 
um, which is something I'd never done before. Um, I always, the audition scene for season two for my character was (laughs) one of the best Lance auditions scenes that I've ever had it. And there are guys that I have, in fact, a guy I worked with on the right stuff said to me after about working together for three months, he said, you know, you got a role that still, I'm still upset about and I'm still bitter about. And I said, what is that? And he said, the role on six. And I said, oh, wow. I said, what about it? You know, what about it made you feel like it was like the one that got away? And he said, it was that audition scene. And it was the most well-written scene that for an audition that I've read in some time. Uh, It's told you everything you needed to know about who this man was, uh, what his point of view was, why he was saying the things he was saying, which is not what he was saying. Um, It was so smart. Um, and unfortunately after I did it and got the job, I wasn't able to do the scene because they didn't put it in the series, which I think is a mistake because it was so well-written, but Alfredo, you were somebody who, um, I really enjoyed working with. You wrote my character on six better than any of the writers in the writer's room. And I always knew your episode, you know, I knew your episodes when they were coming because I knew that my role was written to perfection And I, if I haven't already, thank you for that opportunity because truly not only as an executive producer, but as a writer, you gave me the words to go in. And it was an audition where I remember going in and I remember running it with my, I have a person that I, we run scenes together before auditions, another actor. And I said to her, I walked out the door and I said, you know, I'm getting this right. (laughs) And she said, yeah, this is there's, I just knew it just, it just, it fit like a glove and I went in and, and, and the rest is history. But, um, Alfredo has a way with words and, and, uh, thank you for that. And I, and I hope, I hope we've talked about it and I know we will work together again, but I hope in that capacity we can work together again. Well, I appreciate that very much. I mean, I think, um, uh, you killed it. You killed that role. You, you elevated, all the material. I don't think there is anything as thrilling for a writer than to write something you're very proud of, give it to a very talented actor and be completely surprised by what they bring to the table. And you really did that in an awesome way. I think it's so gratifying to create a character and to write a scene where the way it comes out is so surprising and yet completely truthful. And that's what's awesome about this business is that at the end of the day, it's really a bunch of people collaborating and trying to be like professional creative people who are really devoted to their craft and creating something together that would not otherwise exist, but for their collaboration. So I thank you because I thought you just killed that role, man. Thanks, Ben. Um, This was awesome. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Yeah, this is great stuff. It's one of my favorites so far. Um, really good it. stuff. Yeah, man. Thank, Thank you. you man. Awesome. We didn't even awesome get, I mean, how do we not spend more time on, I like how you snuck in and then I worked in an adult bookstore when I was in high school. Wait, 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 wait what? I'm sorry. <laughs> Can we that's, go back to that for a second? 
All right, every week, friends of the program, MVP this week, Tony Moles at the Anthem Agency. Look him up for any of your graphic design needs. He does all our artwork that we put on Instagram and Twitter uh, and Facebook. Really talented guy. Uh, he's at the Anthem Agency. That's A-N-T-H-M Agency. You can find his work on Instagram as well under the same name. Blackland Distillery, providing us wonderful spirits to get through our days of quarantine, whether it be gin or vodka or bourbon or rye, whatever your pleasure. Uh, you need to pour something over a rock now and again just to get through these days. So check them out. Blackland Distillery, FW out of Fort Worth. They're on all the platforms as well, Instagram, Twitter, and online. And lastly, uh, our music is by Josh Cook, herelisefoe.com. Until next week, thanks for listening. Please subscribe to the podcast and tell your friends.